Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. How you doing, Manila? I'm all right. I'm tired. Yeah. Long weekends, I think it's hard to recover from. Whether or not you're drunk or whatever. Up and, yeah. It's just like you, you get into the groove yeah. of having days off. Right, <laughs> right. That's right. it. Like, that's, that's it. For me, it was nice and quiet because the baby's not into loud booms yet. Uh-huh. We watched fireworks from a distance from our porch. Didn't want to go near the neighbors. Yeah. Which is fine by me. Uh-huh. Because, you know, the economy's so bad, I'm not in the mood for lighting up money and watching it go pop. Right, exactly. So not there yet. How about you? That's just Biden. Uh, <laughs> no, my, my, for the most part, with the exception of one event, great weekend. Extremely good weekend. I made a certain choice over the weekend. I was like, because my thought was, there were certain plans I had for 2022. Get okay. more physically active, make good. connections in the area, because I don't necessarily right, know anybody about DC. Reach out. Reach out. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's hard me. to do under normal circumstances. So my thought was, all right, if go... I have been on and off dinner. I vacillate on it. Okay. Because there are times it's like my confidence is up and at other times my confidence is low. And so it'll be on and off. I think people want to know, Jamarl, because they know you're divorced. Yeah. They followed you through this, you know, the events in your life. Yeah. And now I think the listeners want to know, like, uh-huh. where are you at? What so do you mean? on and off with oh. Tinder. I, I don't want any relationships. And I even not, put in a profile. But this no is like lo- a not coffee, not a coffee date. Right. Non, non-date A non-date again. I call it a non-date date. So, a meetup. A meetup. It's I just a meetup. Meet a meeting. Because it's for me, it's like if you don't want anything out of it, and the only thing you're looking for is just kind of human interaction. Perfect. Okay. Meaning, there is. I've been there. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. It's just just. But that's people to hang also out with. when I met my husband. Really. Was when I was like, you know what? I'm doing my own thing. Yeah. I'm gonna go back and get another degree. Yeah. Everything's online now. It's good. Uh-huh. You know, this is several years back. And yeah. I was like, I'm gonna buy my buy my own condo. I'm an independent woman. Yeah. My plans are this. I'm, I'm <laughs> doing this. I'm doing my own thing. And then my girlfriends were like, you got to try this Bumble thing and at least just get out and just talk to some other human beings other yeah. than professors. And I was like, right. Because that was my right, thought too. fine. And next thing you know, hubby. Boom. Meet the husband. I tell you this. I, um, I supposed to meet a woman for call for dinner thing tonight. You know, whether or not she goes and I think she just drinks. Um, but there's another tonight. person. Supposedly, because I wanted okay. to go out on the fourth, just because it's the fourth. Right. One of the other people in me, she is apparently COVID. She caught it when she was oh, coming back no. from Italy. I was like, oh, that's horrible. But a good I, sign. She travels. She travels exactly. That's good. I got her astrological chart. Oh wow. Unhinged. Jamal is really into the astro charts. Well, I like the comparisons and like right, right. see how it matches up. And, and it's to a see perfect how you experiment. Pay up. You pair with people. And- well, the beauty of this, you can experiment with it. You could say, all right, this is what this looks like. How does she act in practice? Meaning, does it match up? Does it match up with their chart? Yes. This looks more like my first girlfriend and that From relationship high school, you was mean? No, 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 no. My first girlfriend was when I was in my twenties. Like oh, long term relationship. Adult, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, that relationship was insane. Insane. Intense? I've never been in an intense relationship. That intense of a relationship. Bad intense or good intense? It started off both. good intense. It started off on a really high sexual key. Like where we would like like drawn like magnets. Okay. Where I tell you this, um, the first the first night we got together was the first night that we got together. 
And wow. we're, I'm sitting in a hotel room because we're visiting a friend in Georgia. And I'm sitting in a hotel room. The Matrix is on. I am not assuming the sex. Matrix. I'm not assuming sex. I'm a good guy. And I'm looking at it and I'm like rattling off concepts of the movie. And she is sitting in the other chair. I glance over and she's staring at me with this intensity that is coming off in waves. And I'm like, it's time for a man to do work. Oh time my for a man God, to do work. Television off. You knew. I knew. I got it. But it, it, was, it was that way. Eyes. It was a, it so, was, an, okay. I, it was coming off her like heat but waves off her street. you had already done that woman's charts in the 20s? No, the not 20s? at that time. Okay. I, have her, I have it now, but oh. I didn't do it at the time. Oh, so you're reflecting back. Yeah. Okay. It is, that chart has some of the most potent aspects in astrology in that chart. It okay. is insane. And all of it came out. It was a full-blown platonic relationship. Um, jealousy, greed, um, scream. One screaming match in my life, well, with the exception of Fourth of July, but one, it was with her. <laughs> With oh. her in the middle oh, you've of Australia. Never had a screaming match with a partner. No, not under normal circumstances. You don't necessarily get there like that. I mean, with her, yes. With her, yes. I mean, I remember one time we were in the middle of Australia, <laughs> like going at it. Like it just, it was, it was the way we connected. It's like anytime you see people getting together where it burns extremely hot, it often burns out. Yes. And it was that. Yes. It was that. That is true. Yeah, that was an unhinged relationship. There were days where we didn't even get out of bed. Literally, to get out of it. When Sting is like, oh, we were having, uh, what is it, Kama Sutra for 10 hours. Flaming, I laughed at that. Laughed. Flaming white hot heat burns out. I mean, those, like those stars in the galaxy. Yeah, yeah. They burn out quick. Yeah. The ones that are that fiery and that hot. That was an intense relationship. So. Um, but the stars of this one are lining up? This one is worse. Um, We're, like bad? Or the, like it's the, it's ultra similar, hot? It's. I don't, I don't know. I, I need to see it in practice. It, right. Put it this way. I looked at that and I had a bit of anxiety. I was like, this is breaking my plans for the year. But you, that's tr- what that but you like. trust the chart. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. I need to see it in practice. Because just because something is in a chart doesn't mean it's expressed. Like sure, you may I, have. Yeah, um, I understand. Because you may not connect with the person. Maybe it could be anything that's going on that breaks the ability for you two to even get together. And so they could always be roadblocks. Well, see, there's the, the chemical thing. Yeah. Which you and I had talked about. Yeah. It's like. Your stars might align. Yeah. But there's something physical. Yeah. In it just attraction doesn't work. And love. Right. Right. Because everybody's dated somebody that you're like, God, on paper. This works. This should be amazing. Yeah. We should be amazing together. And I feel like I'm talking to a best friend. Right. And like mentally we're stimulated. And then in person you're like, fizzle. This ain't working. <laughs> this ain't working. So look, we'll see. I mean, um, I'll see how the one goes tonight. And the other one, I see how that one goes. So. Get, I, all I'll say is get out there, get well, on the field, like I said, the objective, and play. The objective is only— You've been married a long time. Ten years. I know. Like, so, so you got to get out there. Going back after ten years is—it's it's so kind of like, weird. where do you start, right? Like after kind a decade? Kind of, yeah. Which is why I was like, okay, we'll just hang out. Just find people exactly. for hanging out. If nothing no happens, great. No expectations. Literally. In fact, less than no expectations. Because the objective is not I don't think you anything long You shouldn't be no, ex, like, you should be no expectations, but not less than no expectations. There's a bow if, you the go, door. if you go, like, there's a zero, you know, a jumping off point is zero. Yeah. And if you go below zero, then you're going in with a negative attitude. If you're no, going above I don't mean that. It like, no, I don't mean it like that. I just mean there's a ball in the door. Like, it's like, we can hang out. We can have fun. We can go to movies. We can get drinks. We can do all that stuff. Nothing beyond that. The goal should just be looking for human interaction. That's it. And enjoyment when with your company. That's it. That's it. That's all. That's it. That's all. Yeah. That's you all. Just, that's all. Just 
hey, that's uh, all that's available. Hey, other person, don't be a it's dud. Like, here's my list, other person, and there's, you know, here's my real line. Just yeah. don't be a dud. <laughs> that was like my only, when my girlfriends convinced me to finally get back out there and, and date yeah. after licking my wounds, uh, after heartbreak. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't married, but after heartbreak, went out there. You know, my my only expectation was, fine, I need some social interaction. Right. Fine. I need other humans other than coworkers. Right, right. And talking with professors online. Right. Because not even, you know, all this stuff is Because it's like, this is what you do for, and it's unsatisfying because it's technical stuff, if that makes sense. It's not, it's not the human thing. Right. So right. I was like, fine. My goal will be <laughs> human interaction, seeing facial expressions and off a keyboard. Fine. All my girlfriends were convinced that I was, you know, getting cobwebs. Right. So right, right. Like, I just need to get out there. <laughs> right. Just talk to some people, Manila. And I was like, ugh, I talk all day for a living. I don't right. want to talk to more people for free. But it's not technically for free because you're going to buy me dinner. Yes, Let's exactly. <laughs> you buy me dinner. There may be some later if the person is a friend. Buy me yeah. a drink. Of course. I'm the lady. Buy me a drink. Right. Okay, so, yeah. That, and before I knew it, I had all these plans. And before I knew it, it was like an anvil hit me on the head. Oh, with man. my husband. This and one. all my plans got derailed. That second degree, out, the, out window. the window. And then before I knew it, I was married. Before I knew it, I was pregnant. Before I knew, like, I mean, just oh, geez. boom. Just everything just happened all back at once. To back to back just to back. Completely unplanned. Completely altered my life plans. But see, for me, the marriage thing is left certain, and I didn't even realize it. But maybe because you've done it. Yeah. I mean, apparently she was married at one point, too. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, apparently she just ended her marriage, too. Oh. And so when you're looking at the chart stuff and you're like, okay, there's a lot of subconscious drives in that's going to be acting on this particular relationship between these two people that they're not going to be able to get a handle on. You probably can't necessarily even talk about, but it's going to be affecting the way that they act. And it's like, okay, you have two divorces. So you have two damaged people. Two divorcees. Right. Two divorcees. Two people who are basically damaged with all sorts of weird psychological stuff as a result of the impermanence of the relationship. Great. Let's see how that works. <laughs> that. Well, you know, I mean, the realism here is in, in our age group, 40 plus. Right, right. That's what you're going to find. Yes. You know, usually usually by mid-30s, that's, if you're dating age appropriate. Yeah. That's, it tends to happen. Oh, I don't hate it one way or the other. It's just, you know, we'll see. We'll see yeah. how it goes. Uh, we're, we're, we all want to know the updates tomorrow. Yes. That's assuming she still continues to go through with it, but we'll see. Yeah, and I hate flakiness. But see, I have no expectation for her at all, like that's zero. my only expectation from anybody. Show up. It's just, Show yes, up. when you say you're going to be there, be there. Right. I don't care if you're my date or a business appointment or my husband or my <laughs> nanny. I don't care. You say you're going to be there at a certain time on a certain date, be there. Yeah. That's it. I had an old boss once who used to tell me, because I used to frequently, I'm from California. We all frequently run late. Like, right. that's just a California, it's just a yeah. thing. That's just what people do. And he used to go, Manila, if you can't be on time, be early. <laughs> okay, words to live by. Fair enough. All right. And it kind of stuck with me after, you know, on the verge of losing my yeah. job, right? In your early 20s, you're like, uh, okay. It's like the gravity of it sunk in and you just stay with you. That's a good, uh, okay. good habit. And right, it became a good habit. Yeah. And it developed. That's the only the only thing I ever asked of anybody. You're gonna say you're gonna be there, be there. That's the thing. When you don't have expectations. Everything else is a is a bonus. You have like distance That's my one from it. Yeah. I just have one. one. Just show up. Just show up. You say you're gonna be there, be there. Yeah, that's, one job, bro. Right. That, <laughs> that's job. indicative of a whole lot of other things of yeah. personality traits. Is if somebody shows up when they say they're gonna show up, 
it, it tells you a lot of other things. It's like a job interview in a weird way. Like, it's like if the person doesn't show up on time for a job interview. Ah. What else can you count on them for? Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. anyway, with that, we're going to follow up with Jamal tomorrow, everybody. <laughs> right. The non-dating adventures <laughs> <The> non- <laughs> right. of Jamal Thomas. The non-date dates. That's right. All right. With that, let's head over to some less fun news. We've got some sad domestic news here. A gunman uh, fired a barrage of bullets at a 4th of July Independence Day parade in downtown Highland Park. That's just outside of Chicago and Illinois on Monday, killing six marchers, wounding at least two dozen others. A suspect in the parade shooting has been identified as Robert Bobby Cremo III. He's only 22. He's been arrested by police. On Monday, the Gun Violence Archive said that at least 11 mass shootings have occurred so far across the U.S. since Friday night, leaving at least a dozen people dead so far and scores more injured. The mass casualty shooting comes less than two weeks after President Joe Biden signed a bipartisan gun safety bill into law, which he dubbed the most important legislation in decades. And the U.S. House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol could make multiple criminal referrals, including that of former President Donald Trump. That's according to the panel's vice chair, Representative Liz Cheney, telling ABC in an interview on Sunday. The bipartisan committee has been on a self-appointed mission to gather evidence arguing that Trump, quote, oversaw and coordinated a plan to overturn the 2020 election, which he claimed was rigged to favor his Democratic rival, Joe Biden. However, the lawmakers cannot themselves charge anyone with a crime. When Cheney was asked whether a criminal referral of Trump for further prosecution was possible, she replied yes. Cheney went on to say that the panel would possibly have a view on whether Trump should be prosecuted. Then down in Texas, Pete Arredondo, the chief of the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District Police Department, has signaled that he will be stepping down from a separate elected position as the district continues to grapple with the tragic loss of more than a dozen elementary school children and two educators. Quote, after much consideration, I regret to inform those who voted for me that I have decided to step down as a member of the city council for District 3. That's Arredondo in a statement providing to the Uvalde Leader News. Quote, the mayor, the city council, and the city staff must continue to move forward without distractions. Arredondo was appointed to the Uvalde City Council on May 7th and was sworn in on May 31st, a week after the shooting at Robb Elementary School. His resignation comes shortly after the city council denied his request for an extended leave of absence amid this public scrutiny. Then international news here. The Baltic Sea will become, quote, an internal basin of the NATO bloc after Finland and Sweden join the alliance with every country bordering the sea, barring Russia and its exclave of Kaliningrad to be part of the alliance. That's according to Polish President Andrzej Duda. The Baltic Sea, he says, is essentially poised to become NATO's internal basin. Two very powerful nations with a long and strong military tradition will become part of NATO soon, extending the Russia-NATO border by 1,400 kilometers, which is no doubt bad news for Russian authorities. 
That's Duda talking during a meeting of Poland's Security Council Monday. He was expressing hope that Finland and Sweden are accepted quickly and that their membership is ratified by NATO's 30 members, Duda stressing that there was no need for an explanation on how important this decision is for us, he says. However, just this morning, Turkey reminded the bloc that, (laughs) yes, there's Turkey again, unless all their requirements are met, their demands. Recep Erdogan says, don't forget, my parliament doesn't have to ratify. Not just up to me. He says, my parliament. She come out and says, I'm still holding on to your testicles. Be aware. <laughs> That's basically. Be aware. That is the translation. Like, that is the translation. Be aware. I still have it in my back pocket, boys. <laughs> right. That's what he's saying. But in a diplomatic way, of course. Right. Then President Biden is expected to roll back some Trump-era tariffs on Chinese imports as early as next week, according to insiders cited by the Wall Street Journal. The decision, which could include a pause on tariffs on consumer goods ranging from clothing to school supplies, would likely be complemented by a broader policy allowing importers to request tariff waivers. The decision is believed to be prompted by the need to address skyrocketing inflation, which rose unexpectedly last month to a fresh four-decade high of 8.6%. That's according to the U.S. Department of Labor. However, the move will attempt to strike a balance between cutting consumer costs while maintaining pressure on Beijing. Then gunfire from Israeli positions was, quote, likely responsible for the death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, U.S. officials have concluded after examining the bullet which they received from Palestinian authorities in order to conduct an independent ballistic examination. The United States, quote, found no reason to believe that this was intentional, but rather the result of tragic circumstances during an IDF-led military operation against factions of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. That's according to State Department spokesman Ned Price on Monday. Price said the ballistic examination was inconclusive due to the fact that the bullet was badly damaged. Jamal shaking his head here because, folks, we know. They shot that woman on purpose. We know. Let's be very clear. Right. But he's, he's, he's removing... Because obviously Israel is America's closest ally in of the course. Middle East. Yeah. So they are removing that, the kind of moral responsibility. Yeah, the room culpability. They're saying, yes, this is an IDF bullet. That's what the State Department is saying. Yes, this is an IDF bullet. There's nothing to make us think but, it was intentional. But the feelings, they weren't doing it maliciously. No, not at all. No. No. Because how could you identify her wearing blue vests that say press yeah. and, a, and a helmet that says press? And everything carrying, you know, her camera equipment with her. To be fair, press. it was in English, though. And, you know, so. Yeah. Just, yeah. This but, is nonsense. They, they shot that woman on purpose. They didn't like that woman's reporting. They killed her. They murdered her. And now the U.S. is coming out. Well, yeah, it was. The it Israelis was did it. But yeah. there's nothing. That, it's the yeah, most yeah. moral military in the world. It, just, it happened. It just happened. That's all they're saying is it happened. So that's very tragic. And some economics news here. Growing concerns over rampant inflation and aggressive use of classic monetary tools by the U.S. Central Bank have fanned fears of recession across Wall Street and in Washington, according to Politico. President Biden may have insisted that there's nothing inevitable about a U.S. recession, but repeating the mantra is unlikely to make it a reality, claims analysts. 
Accordingly, Wall Street is increasingly building the gloomy possibility of recession into its forecast. A brief yet shallow recession could start in the last three months of the year, according to Dana Peterson, the chief economist at the conference board, speaking at a women rule event by Politico. Michael Foroli, the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan Chase, believes that a downturn could start as soon as this quarter. As he pointed out to consumer spending beginning to slow, things are looking like we're losing altitude pretty quickly. I'd say so. And then we'll go to this day in history now. Back in 1921, players from the Chicago White Sox baseball team are accused of throwing the World Series in no pun intended. Maybe there was a pun intended. In 1946, the France bikini swimsuit is introduced. The bikini. bikini. Ooh la la. Right on. In 1955, here in the U.S., rock around the clock, number one on the American Billboard music charts. In 1971, the voting age in the United States lowered to 18 years old when the 26th Amendment is ratified. In 1996, the first cloning of an animal by scientists in Scotland. You might recall this. I remember that. Dolly the sheep. I remember that. <laughs> We're getting old. That's, I, I know. I 96. remember this clear Man. as day. Yeah, me too. That was This Day in History, 1996. For your Tuesday, July the 5th, you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Vanilla Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to go to the price caps idea. Now, there are all sorts of stories that have been floating around, but I've been fascinated by this one just because of how utterly and entirely unhinged from reality that the idea is. It is wishful thinking on steroids, powered, basically, with an inability to find a magical door. There is no magical door. I mean, the conversation with Macron and Biden tells there is no magical door. There is nowhere else where we can get this energy from anytime soon. And you even have situations where people in Germany, like um, leaders of the industry, are making a point of saying industries. Industries with an S may shut down as a result, especially if there are impacts to the oil and gas um, acceptance from Russia in this case. And to make that more apt, of course, there was a 60% drop. There's that. So think about what I said prior. If they do come up with this particular idea, why do they think? Why do they think that with all of the money and extra revenue that Russia was able to make, A, that they'll be forced to give the product at all? B, why do they believe that Russia can't come up with deals itself with other countries on the issue of insurance where they could transport that oil, gas, whatever, from point A to point B? Meaning, why does the West believe they have the powers at their disposal to do something that they haven't been able to do the entire conflict? Whether they couldn't win on the ground, and it doesn't even seem, based on some of the analysis that I've seen, that they could ever muster the number of weapons based on the industries or, let's say, the devaluation of those industries over the course of all of these years, meaning we financialize our economy. It's not necessarily this production and everything else that we used to be. So, A, we can't even give them the weapons that they would need in order to change the context on the ground. And from an economic sense, these guys are, there's no way out. And they know that there's no way out. Bloomberg 
did an analysis. I'm sorry, J.P. Morgan did an analysis of the oil price cap idea. And they basically, right here, right here, global, global oil prices could reach a stratospheric $380 a barrel if the United States and European penalties prompt Russia to inflict retaliatory crude output cuts. J.P. Morgan and Chase and company analysts warned. So when the West came out with this idea, none of them sat there and did an analysis and think to themselves, what if they just don't deliver us the gas? What if it just stops? What if Germany wakes up one morning and Europe wakes up one morning and no longer the, pack, the tap is no longer on? And again, I keep making a point that the relationship that is created amongst the various other leaders, there is no reason on earth outside of wishful thinking for them to believe that this was going to be a success or that this had any chance of doing what they wanted it to do, meaning to put pressure on Moscow. It is obscene. I want to read China's article in, in um, response to this because basically Reuters came out with an article saying that there was conversations between China and I guess the U.S. or representatives um, that actually went quite well. Well, this comes out in Global Times. GT Voice, colon, G7 is in no position to dictate nations' oil trade with Russia. And the article hits upon some of the other issues that I hit upon, but China is one of those countries that you would need to be online in order to even make this work. And up to this point, India and China has told the West to kick rocks. And the reason is pretty straightforward. The cheap energy that they were basically able to get was allowing their industries, meaning in Europe or in the West, to basically put output. Now, energy is going to be a cost of whatever product or whatever service you're basically making. And if you have a situation where that energy is either non-existent, meaning it's not there, where you have to basically shut the industry down, or whether it goes up monstrously high, well, that cost may make the business insoluble in one sense, but it also may make it difficult for anybody to buy that particular product at any particular cost. Like, for example, the energy in the UK, I mean, in winter months, that they're estimating is going to spike to over several thousand pounds. So if you're in a situation where you're China or you're India, and you're able to get this cheap energy at a discount, then your economy, manufacturing, the people who are in that particular country, all of those people basically benefit from that. If you are part of the West, who no longer is getting that cheap industry and is buying it third-hand, I mean, for God's sake, Europe is actually buying energy from, um, from India that it basically got from Russia. If you're doing that, then what does that mean for your industries? What does that mean for the people in your country that has to basically pay the extra money for that? You are staring a, re a, re a recession in the face as a direct result of it. But it's worse than that. If you assume for the moment that there was some imaginary scale, let's say from one to 10, and let's say that Europe was at five, let's say India was at six, and let's say because of the deal that India was able to make, let's say India goes up to eight, but let's say Europe drops down to two. Yes, the distance between them have expanded, not just because of the extra benefit that they're getting from it, but also because of the depreciation in Europe itself. Keep in mind, it's a capitalistic system. It's competition built into the fabric of the system itself. And you've basically made your situation against your competitors around the globe worse. This is what China said. The so-called group or G7 nations on Tuesday had a positive and productive discussions with China and India about plans to implement price caps on Russia exports. Reuters reported on Wednesday, the news came on the heels of G7 agreement on exploring imposing a price cap on Russian oil, apparently as part of the West's ever-expanding sanctions on Russia. Details remain sketchy regarding the so-called discussions. As of press time on Wednesday, there has been no official confirmation from relevant parties regarding Reuters' report, which cited unidentified sources. The report suggested that China and India would be able to buy Russian crude at even lower prices 
was under the plan, but would present or represent a significant shift for China and India as both have refrained from joining the United States-led sanctions against Russia and have continued normal economic and trade cooperation with Russia. China's foreign ministry has repeatedly stated that the unilateral sanctions are not conducive to resolving issues and that China and Russia always engage in normal economic and trade cooperation on the basis of mutual respect, equality, and mutual benefit. India, despite pressure from Washington, has also continued energy trade with Russia. Although it remains unclear what the reported discussions were about and what the outcome was, one thing is very clear. The G7 led by the United States is primarily seeking to increase pressure on Russia as their previous moves fail to sway Moscow in the interests of China and India, or any other country for that matter. It's not their primary concern, despite so-called attractive pitch. Over the past several months, the United States and some of its allies imposed an embargo on Russian oil in an effort to maximize pressure on Russia, while the EU agreed to ban most Russian oil imports by the end of the year. But the sanction measure aimed at depriving Russia of oil reserves has proved counterproductive. According to the IEA data, Russian oil export revenues increased by $1.75 billion in May to about $20 billion, which is well above the 2021 average of roughly $15 billion. So they've gained $5 billion more than they would have typically gotten over the course of a year. Then came the idea of creating a buyer's cartel with the aim of keeping Russia oil supplies on the market to avoid further price hikes to limit its oil revenues. While a cap on Russian oil prices may sound like a great idea for the West when it comes to curbing Moscow's revenues and oil sales, implementing a price cap could only be a fantasy with little feasibility if the G7 cannot get the world's major oil importers on the same page. Yet, the problem is that G7 nations are no longer major buyers of Russian oil. And as an unrelated third party, the G7 has neither the qualification nor the market power to dictate energy trade among China, India, and Russia. Western media reports go so far to suggest that the West may impose a price cap through insurance. About 95% of the world's tanker fleet is insured through International Group of Protection and Indemnity clubs in uh, London and some companies in other European countries. G7 could tell crude buyers that if they want to continue using insurance service for Russian oil shipments, they need to agree to capped price. But even that could also fail to pressure Russia as Russia has already prepared an alternative by offering insurance through the Russian National Reinsurance Company according to media reports. The moves could also further disrupt already turbulent global energy trade by creating more barriers and more chaos. As for China, this last paragraph, stable energy prices are of great significance to its domestic, social, and economic development, and China and Russia are important partners in energy trade cooperation with continuous practical progress recorded over the years. If there is a need for price adjustment in bilateral energy trade, China and Russia can discuss the issue through bilateral China's channels, the G7 has no qualifications to tell them how to conduct trade. This article basically means that idea is dead on arrival. And it's amazing to me that these guys came out, announced this nonsense, harebrained idea as a solution to their oil and gas and energy issues. Dead on arrival. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to go to our guest, again, an oracle, um, Minister Truth, uh, and I mean it in the real sense of the word. We have the one and only Scott Ritter. He's former U.N. weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower, and he is a regular on Fault Lines, where we go to him for understanding of the situation on the ground in Ukraine. Scott, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? 
I'm doing great. Thanks. Yourself? Much better that you are with us. Much better that you're with us. By the way, did you have a good fourth before going into the conversation? I did. Thank you. Yourself? It was good, mostly, yes. Interesting. It was an interesting fourth. <laughs> I put it that way. It was an interesting fourth. Mostly good, though. 95% of it was good. Um, but let's go into the conflict. It wasn't so good for some of the Ukrainian troops. No, it was not, <laughs> especially in the Lugansk region. So it seems that Russia or Moscow has basically taken the entirety of the region. What is your take on this? Let me just get, I'll just start with a, somewhat of a wide open question. Can you give us an assessment of what's going on, on the ground and what does it mean that the Lugansk region has basically come under Moscow's control? I mean, this was, of course, the stated objective of uh, Russia in, uh, you know, undertaking the special military operation was to liberate uh, the Donbas uh, from Ukrainian control. And Donbas consists of two newly uh, independent uh, Lugansk and Donetsk. And um, this is, a, this is for, for the Russian perspective, uh, a great achievement. They've... Uh, They've they've taken back one one uh, you know one of the one of the two uh, independent republics and now they are turning their attention to um, Donetsk. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not just the acquisition of territory that's uh, significant here, though. It's the the methodology that's been um, you know applied by the Russians. Uh, you know, I've spoken several times what I call about you know a culminating moment, the culminating effect. Um, we're seeing that. We're seeing. Um, how the Russian superiority in firepower and tactics um, has, you know, I, I've talked about grinding down the Ukrainians. Uh, at some point in time, though, you know, I can grind down something until there's nothing left. <laughs> and we're getting to the point now uh, for the Ukrainians where when it comes to the quality of their military, um, there's not much left. Uh, they they have a military. I mean, they're receiving billions of NATO equipment. Um, they have troops on the front lines, but for the most part, the you know the well-trained, uh, well-equipped, well-led um, combat forces that existed when the special military operation began, um, you know, no longer no longer exist intact. Uh, we're looking at you know. Units that uh, have lost uh, 70, 80 percent combat effectiveness uh, in terms of, you know, their experienced forces. They've been replaced by poorly trained troops. And we're seeing how they perform on the battlefield, which is um, not well at all. I mean, because the Russian objective was to basically destroy the Ukrainian military. And so when people talk about this from this context of taking territory, they're kind of missing the objective. And yet those tr troops, Ukrainian troops, tend to stand and fight. So from your standpoint, why— it seems to be accelerating, meaning the Russian tactic of artillery, then troops, et cetera, and that kind of repeating the motif over and over again. The speed at which the Ukrainian forces in that region seem to be depreciating faster. Or am I wrong on that? No, no, that's that's exactly. Look, when when if you start with a unit that's at 100 percent designed um, efficiency, which is what you know your normal active duty military unit is, um, it's not just numbers that count, but it's how the numbers interact with one another, how weapon systems support one another, how the tactics support other units, et cetera. So the whole system is operating at a it, it, it designed efficiencies. As war goes on and you take casualties, um, you know, let, let's say that you know, plan A requires you to have 10 of 10 
you know, military units operating. Um, you're now taking the casualties, say you're down to seven. But that's a 30% reduction in, uh, in efficiency. Uh, if you replace them with uh, units that aren't of the same caliber, you're not going to go to 100% just because your numbers are up. You're, you're going to be less. And sometimes you can't make that equation. You can't say losing 30% means you now have 70%. The way the military works, losing 30% might actually mean you're down to 40% efficiency because you know, uh, there, there's you know, a, a magnifying impact as, as things work. A uh, long way of saying that Ukrainian units today um, aren't operating at anywhere near their peak efficiency, um, whereas the Russian units are. And so when you take a peak efficiency unit and it goes up against a non-peak efficiency unit, the, uh, the results are going to be catastrophic for the non-efficiency unit. That's what we're seeing with the Ukrainians. It's a non-efficient military right now going up against an extremely efficient military. Now, Scott, can you address a couple of things for me here? I read over the weekend, just last night, actually, I read that the the demand for the conscripts has expanded mm. to even women and even people with with crippling disabilities, right? So before they were, you know, yeah. looking for for healthy young men up to, you know, older men in their 60s. 16 every, and above or something, right? Right, yeah. right. so like, it's kind of expanded to young women if they're willing to pick up arms. Uh, so I read some of that. And I, I'm reading right now on RT.com that the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, is reporting that, quote, over the past 10 days, 170 foreign mercenaries have been killed. 99 have refused to participate in combat and left the territory of Ukraine. And further to that, the data from the defense uh, ministry says that 6,956 foreign citizens from 64 countries have arrived in Ukraine to become pro-Kiev combatants between February 24 and June 17. Some 1,956 of those have been killed, while 1,779 have left country. Uh, can you address those two issues for us about not only foreign mercenaries, but also now asking women to come join the fight? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very strange because although the Ukrainians have suffered um, significant casualties, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're talking uh, in, in, in a range um, between 30 and 50,000 um, you know, casualties so far, which is significant. Um, you know, they started with a military of 260,000 active duty with uh, 60,000 reserves. So, you know, the, again, we talk about that efficiency level. I mean, you, you can't reduce uh, these, these troops um, and, and expect to, to have the same level of combat capability. But there is no reason for Ukraine to be drafting women or to be drafting um, persons with disabilities. No reason whatsoever. It's a nation of 40 million. Uh, and there's every reason to believe that they could mobilize, um, you know, 12, 15 million men, uh, you know, combat-capable you know, men uh, before, um, 
I've got a dog. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting here laughing. No, you're fine. The, you're the fine. dog's mad about the conscript story. Right. It's like, how dare they? Yeah. But, 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 you know, so this tells me that there's a systemic failure uh, in, in, in Ukraine that they, they're having problems. I mean, and we know this. We know that many Ukrainian men have fled from yeah. the country, especially the, the, the sons and relatives of, the, uh, of, of Ukrainian officials. Uh, it's, it's a scandal. Uh, you know, when, when, when you have, you know, the, the you know, Poroshenko's children living outside of the country, um, they're not fighting, they're not paying the price. And so I, I think what you're seeing is a, the, the conscript system, the ability to mobilize the nation, um, that, that, that process is faltering. So, you know, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel, uh, to, to, to bring in that, which is necessary. The other thing is, um, to what degree propaganda plays into this on both sides. I mean, you know, it, are these, are these reports accurate? Uh, because, uh, you know, even, even Nazi Germany in the final days of the war, weren't conscripting women weren't conscripting people with disabilities. Um, and so I, I just find that, that aspect of the story to be, you know, quite extreme. Um, and the other thing is Ukrainians could be releasing it just to create the impression of weakness while they, you know, while, while they mobilize more able-bodied people. I don't know. What I do know is the Ukrainian army is suffering catastrophic losses at the battlefield, and there's nothing the Ukrainian government appears to be able to do to uh, reverse that trend. And, you know, and, and if you don't have a functioning army, um, you can equip it with the best equipment in the world. You're going to lose. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's thousands of mercenaries. I mean, it seems like Western media is burying that lead. I feel like that's mm. something they should be talking about, right? I mean, 64 different countries, people coming from 64 different countries, people aren't identifying them. The Western media is not claiming, you know, hey, these are our guys from our country. None of that's happening. Nobody's talking about that. Why not? Well, one, to be honest, with, with very few exceptions, they, they have zero impact on the battlefield. Um, they're not that good. I mean, when you when you read the stories about the people that die, you know, we it, it, they're tragic stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was an unemployed Brazilian worker, left a wife and two kids. He was struggling finding a job, no military experience. Shows up in Kiev. Uh, two weeks later, he's on the front lines. Yeah. Um, so when you know when people think mercenaries, you know, you know when I when I hear that term, I I, I think you know the the wild geese <laughs> that, that 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 movie, you know where. You know, former paratroopers. Right, we're thinking like Black Rock, right. Blackwater. Blackwater, yeah. Like something. What, what, what you're getting is Fat Rock. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> overweight, overage, no training. Uh, just it's 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 really pathetic uh, on a on a scale that's unimaginable. And even when you can put you can cobble together a unit of uh, of people with with combat experience. Understand this. If I take a unit of five, uh, five Canadians, five Poles, five Americans, and five Brits, um, all of whom have combat experience and were trained to bring them together, uh, they're not going to perform very well because their experiences, their training, their whole approach is completely different. They won't function properly. They won't coordinate properly, and they're all going to die eventually. Uh, and and the, the reality, though, is that you don't have that many people of military experience going over there. Um, the, the guys that have real military experience are taking one look at that saying, no, thank you. We don't want any part of this. Um, 
this is just it's one of those tragic stories and the west is ignoring it because of its uh, of the just how pathetic it is. Uh, you know, this International Legion is not the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No, it's not. No, it's not. And I was and the Washington Post, that bombshell story that kind of goes into what those people were experiencing. Yeah. I mean, nails it. With the mercenaries? Oh, man. The, the people who was like, I want to kill Russians and whatnot. They get into the oh, country. Oh. They're shuffling from point A to point B. They don't have any experience. Oh, with they their, one, the front with their lines. potato and, yeah, with their and, potato a, and, a, rifle. and a butter knife. Yeah. And like, then it's like the Russians are hitting with artillery not, and they just have a gun. Who's paying for if These guys are these guys that are down right, in the dumps. That. Yeah. Who is paying for them to fly out there? If these are guys in favelas in Rio de Janeiro, how are they affording, you know, a thousand dollar ticket to fly into Poland and then make their way down to Kiev? The sad thing is uh, many of the people who deploy self-deploy, so they mortgage their 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 lives. Are you serious? Oh, my God. Put their families at risk. Uh, and many of the stories you hear about the Americans, you know, they 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 sell everything to raise you know, the $3,000 it takes to fly over there. Um, and then, you know, they, they, they get to the front line. That how they get paid in-country, it depends who they belong to. If they belong to the International Legion, um, then they're paid by the taxpayer, U.S. taxpayer. We're paying, wow. um, you know, we, because that's considered to be a part of the Ukrainian military. And uh, we, we are paying for the salaries of every Ukrainian soldier right now. Oh, that is horrendous, Scott. Um, I guess let's go into the military situation on the ground now that uh, the Lugansk region has been taken. Um, I, I would imagine that there's going to be a force that's basically just going to be able to maintain the area. But the bulk of the military, what's going to happen to the bulk of the Russian military? They're going to turn and go after other regions? Can you give us an assessment of what's next? One of the, 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 the crazy things about Ukraine accepting these long-range artillery systems is um, it, it's clear that the the Russians and the Lugansk militia, et cetera, are not going to stop at the border. Right. Um, they they're going to continue uh, to because they have to destroy the Ukrainian military. There can be no ceasefire. Uh, the Ukrainians, uh, you, you you can't uh, when you have a rabid dog, uh, you you can't just you know, say, well, he's away from my home right now. Um, we're, we're stopping. The rabid dog will be back. It will attack. It's not thinking. Ukraine is a rabid dog right now. Uh, its government has been taken over by, you know, these ultra-nationalists, uh, many of whom have neo-Nazi, uh, you know, ideological affiliations. These are people who are passing laws as we speak, which outlaw being Russian. Right. Um, so the, the concept that you can peacefully coexist with these people as your neighbors is absurd in the extreme. This war will continue until all the objectives stated by the Russians up front have been accomplished. That's not me saying this. That's every single senior Russian official. That means not just denazification, but demilitarization. Uh, so long as Ukraine receives the you know, NATO equipment, this war will continue until all of that NATO equipment is destroyed. So is Kramatorsk going to be the next location where this military goes or is aiming towards, I should say. Well, the, the Russians have, uh, I mean, uh, eventually they're going to be pushing that direction. The Russians have, you know, taken a, a strategy, the, the cauldron strategy, which basically, as the Ukrainians accumulate forces in a, in a given area, the Russian goal is to encircle it. And, and we've seen that. We, we saw that with the Severodonetsk and, 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 and such. Um, but these aren't going to be, I don't think right now we're looking at you know, the grand encirclements. Um, the, you know, one, 
That requires a lot of military capacity on the part of Russia. Two, it's risky. Uh, you can suffer, um, you know, enemy can counterattack. You can, you can suffer casualties of your own. Uh, and three, what they're doing is succeeding. So there's going to be smaller cauldrons, and I think that's just the strategy of the Russians is to keep pushing, 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 seek to encircle five, six, seven thousand Ukrainian troops, uh, forcing them to either die or retreat, and um, they will they will keep going until they um, until they defeat the Ukrainian government. I mean, and, and the longer the Ukrainian government survives, the more Ukrainian territory is going to be lost. And the Russians have made it clear that um, if there's Russians living on that territory. It ain't being returned, uh, so it's permanent loss of territory for uh, for Ukraine. And again, uh, you got to wonder what the people in, in in NATO are thinking because this is they're literally, um, you know, facilitating uh, the suicide of a nation. Go into that for me. What are they thinking? I mean, like, because my thought was this is an astonishing discrediting. Um, on any level from the standpoint of having power. And I would go further. I would even say that whatever power, whatever authority, whatever capabilities that the West had at their disposal at one point is basically being, I don't know, I guess eroded. I mean, even from the standpoint of the economic damage that's taken place from the economic war. But what what is going on in their heads at this moment? I mean, because it feels like they can't extricate themselves from the conflict because they've politically wed themselves to it um, so closely. By the same token... At a certain point, all of this is going to come to a head, and we are inexorably, slowly getting to that point where this comes to a head, where it becomes clear that the economic war and the war on the ground is lost, and Russia is going to dictate terms. They have to know that. But tell me if I'm wrong. What's your context of this? Oh, no, you're right, but uh, NATO is not a common sense organization. It's a political organization, um, <laughs> and that means that the politicians uh, don't aren't, you know— <laughs> There's there's a reason why the the, the 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 levees in New Orleans were never fixed uh, prior to Hurricane Katrina. And that's because politicians, when they allocate money, want their name attached to it. And these levee projects took too long to to build, so no politician could get their name attached to it. So they didn't do it. Um, that's how a politician thinks. They think short term. NATO is a political organization. They suffered one of the greatest humiliations, the greatest humiliation in their history last year with their withdrawal from Afghanistan. They're now suffering a humiliation of an, of, of an order of magnitude even larger with what's going on in Ukraine. Um, politicians can't survive uh, the humiliations of this sort. So politicians seek to shape perception. They live in a fantasy world um, uh, because it, it's all about the short term. It doesn't matter that anybody with common sense understands that there's nothing about the NATO policy today that's sustainable in any fashion. They are literally stripping their armories bare to supply the Ukrainians, uh, knowing full well that everything they send there will be destroyed without changing the outcome. Then they're banking on the ability to rebuild their military. I mean, this, this, the, the, you know, the fantasy of 300,000, you know, um, combat-ready troops, uh, you have many NATO members saying, where did Stoltenberg get that number? You didn't talk to us. It's a fantasy number. And even NATO had to come out and say, it's an objective. Right. It's concept. Yeah. <laughs> it's a concept. <laughs> so things about concepts are they require money. And uh, I was listening to some of your conversation leading in here. Um, Europe, normally, you know, a, a strong defense comes from a strong economy. Right. Europe doesn't have a strong economy and they won't have a strong economy. 
How are they going to pay for this? They're not going to pay for this. This is going to re- remain a concept. Meanwhile, Russia um, is, is the exact opposite with a, with a vibrant, not vibrant, that's the wrong term, but a viable economy, we can say. Um, a military that is uh, getting better every day because, again, when we speak of combat efficiency, there's theoretical combat efficiency, meaning peacetime military. We think they're good, but we don't know because we've never tested them. And there's actual competency. That's the Russian military. These guys are really, really good uh, because they, they are doing it and they're doing it successfully. They have systems in place that work. They know how to communicate. They know how to coordinate uh, with extreme lethality. Uh, so the Russian you know, uh, combat uh, capability you know, quotient is just going up even further while NATO is degrading because they're stripping themselves of weapons without any identifiable means of replacing them. And the training required to get people from 400,000, you know, rapid reaction forces to 300,000, you know, that's just not just a matter of a number and equipping them and identifying them. You have to train them. There's a reason why they go from garrison troops to, you know, rapid reaction forces. That because they're, that's because they're out every day training to do just that. That's extraordinarily expensive. And again, I wonder what economy is going to underwrite this, especially when the citizens are um, hungry, cold, employed. (laughs) That's the future. I want to touch on on another NATO member here, which is is Germany, because um, in an article at RT.com, which I have cross-verified with Der Spiegel and WLZ uh, online, uh, .de, which is Deutsch, obviously. Um, but the RT article talks about, uh, it says, Germany has tacitly criticized criticized Ukraine for the apologism of Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera advocated by Kiev's ambassador. The country should join the Berlin-based International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance where Bandera's role in ethnic cleansing can be discussed. German anti-Semitism commissioner Felix Klein saying this uh, yesterday on Monday. And now WLZonline.de says, uh, they're quoting Der Spiegel as well, that a controversial interview with Andre Milnick is being again allowed on TikTok. The short video platform unblocked the clip again. Uh, Der Spiegel citing a statement from the company that previously saw a violation of its guidelines in the interview because he says, quote, or they say, quote, we don't always do everything right. This is a complex, nuanced area. And in it, the interview, the Ukrainian ambassador to Germany defended the former nationalist leader, Stepan Bandera, and said, quote, Bandera was not a mass murderer of Jews and Poles. There's no evidence for this. Wow. So is this kind of like an internal fractioning because there's no media outlet in the West at all? I mean, well, Germany is the West, but I should say America. Yeah. To report on this part that there internally, there's a fight here about the ideology behind a lot of, of sections of, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a statue uh, for Stepan Bandera up in the middle of Lviv. I mean, no one's talking about that. He's, he's the national hero of Ukraine. He is literally the George Washington of Ukraine. That's by law. The, 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 the Ukrainian parliament has voted him such. Uh, when, I, when I say that 
you know, the Ukrainians have been taken over by this, this nationalist movement. Um, the hero of the, uh, the, the, the hero of this movement is Stepan Bandera. Um, and you can't, you literally can't scratch a Ukrainian today, um, and not find a Bandera supporter. Um, and, and this is becoming the uncomfortable truth in the past. People used to be able to say, well, they're just a minority. It's not a big deal. Um, but this war has brought out the reality of Ukraine and Ukrainians. Um, and the people today that are supporting Zelensky, supporting this fight, supporting uh, the policy. And remember, as we speak, the Ukrainian parliament is banning Russian language, banning Russian literature, banning Russian culture. Uh, they, 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 they speak in horrific terms about the Russians, uh, the you know, Muscovites, the, 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 the orcs. Um, they, 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 they view them as subhumans, and we know what that means. That means that their lives aren't worth anything, that you can murder them, torture them, etc. This is Nazi ideology, and this is mainstream, mainstream, so mainstream that the Ukrainian ambassador to Germany visits the grave of Stepan Bandera, and the fact that this man has a grave is sickening to me. His body should be taken up, burned, and dispersed. Uh, there, there should be no place where people can go to visit this man. He should be reviled. Uh, when you mention his name, you should spit in disgust. And yet Ukraine worships this man. He is that which makes this modern incarnation of Ukraine tick. And it's becoming apparent to everybody that there is a problem in Ukraine. Yeah. And that problem yeah. is the neo-Nazi ideology of the Ukrainian nationalists Scott, we have to jump in. Yeah. Always appreciate your, um, you joining us, man. Always. Uh, the Voice, you were listening to Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. I always enjoy Scott's performances. Yeah. Scott always. Barry's intense. He is very intense. But I he love knows it. his stuff. He does know stuff. And he and tells he, you explicitly, you don't question what he's saying, right? He, it's he like, shoots from the hip. Yeah. And he tells you straight out. It's right. like, maybe he meant, the, no, no. It's very clear. No, no. He's like, you're going to die or you're going to gonna surrender. There is no. Your bones will turn to ash. Right. And you're like. <laughs> right. Oh, oh God, that's awful. So you're saying they're not going to make it. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's like, okay, fair enough. Not only are they not going to make it. They're going to be sent home in a box to, you know, with a bow on it. Like, yeah. oh. It's like, wow. Oh, my. Okay. <laughs> oh, my. War is. <laughs> oh, my. War is ugly. Yes. But, yeah, again, I mean. What, but you know the, what? That point right there. War is ugly. And war that's why ugly. I appreciated with him talking about it in an, in in an ugly way. Yeah. Yes. No, I yeah. appreciate that, too, because yeah. we've often talked about, you know, after the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. it was like a concerted effort by U.S. media to whitewash how ugly war yes. is. Yeah. Because 
if you're going to send people in it, you don't want them to know how bad it is. Right. And, yeah. and, in Viet- and with the Vietnam War, we saw so many body bags, so many boxes coming back. Not to mention that. The people coming back. Flag they draped, were broken. And the broken people yep. that survived to tell the story yep. of the horrors. Addicts. Oh, that's yeah. Right. And, yeah. And, you know, that caused the biggest wave of... Um, a veteran homelessness that this country has ever seen and and the VA was ill prepared to deal with all of those people that did survive. Yeah. Because part of me maybe I'm I'm a cynic, but a part of me starts to wonder if the VA was so ill prepared mm-hmm. because they weren't expecting them to survive. Interesting. Like they're it's more expensive for them to come back basically. Absolutely, because the, 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 that's why the VA is constantly like underfunded um and they're not prepared and and this is going all the way back you know, to the 70s when we brought the boys home. That's such a slap in the face, by the way. And it absolutely I is. Know, I mean, it's like, we need you to go and risk your lives and, for that matter, kill other people. And we're going to say we support the troops. But the thing that basically F- does literally— Wave the little flag. Yeah, we wave the flag. We love our troops. But in real terms, like real physical matter reality terms, the thing that would help the troops is underfunded. Right. Continuously so. Right. Because I, 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 in my, you know, assessment is that if you were— expecting any victory or you expecting whatever, you would expect to have to take care of these people when they come home, right? And the fact that this many survivors did come back Mm -hmm. from the Vietnam War shows me that the VA was not expecting people to survive because they knew they were sending American kids to the meat grinder. Yeah. And that's what they call it, a meat grinder. And and they, but they, uh, they made it back. You know, some of them with horrific injuries. and, and, you know, it's not the type of warfare that we see now, which mm-hmm. is like precision guided, you know, hit a button. I mean, that was back then, hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, you were out there in the jungles. Right, you were literally yeah. in the jungle, yeah. hand-to-hand, brutal combat. Yeah. And, you know, today's VA is still ill-prepared. So it's been like a domino ever since the Radically 70s. ill-prepared. I don't know anybody that has gone to the VA that thinks otherwise. And, like, I have my— um. I know family, I have people who I know who are, you know, previous soldiers and everything else. They, you know, the VA is massively underfunded. Like it's, it's. And they fight you when you claim that you have an injury from serving in the service. Like my husband had to fight for 12 years to get his case approved because then they have to, they owe you, Mm -hmm. right? Like they got to pay you back money for it. That's right. right. He he has life, lifelong altered health because of his time serving in the U.S. Army. Yeah. And he had to, you make these people fight yes. for the thing that you promise them. Yes. Yes. Which, which is terrible. My husband fought for over a decade. This is like a social contract. That it's yes. like, we need you to pay the ultimate price, literally, meaning your life potentially, right. for this government. Okay, fair enough. But if you do that. To help achieve your objectives. Right. Whatever those objectives are. But if you do that, we're going to take care of you when you get back. Right. You're going to be able to get health care when you get back. We're, we're going to take have, care of you. We got you. Yeah, we're going to have all we'll these benefits. We'll send you to school. And then you get back and you're fighting tooth and nail in order to get what they basically promise you to to do it. Which is basic health care. Slap in the face. Health, basic health care. Right. And by the way, health care because of injuries that you're potentially taking doing your job. That you were doing, that you you received during your job serving in the U.S. military. So that was like my husband's case. He literally had to keep fighting and grind away, grind away, grind away to prove his case that he was, you know, had these... Injuries that stemmed from that. Because yeah. they're like, well, how do you know you didn't slip and fall? Like stupid questions like that. That's that's literally what happens from the VA. Because they're, wow. it's, it's like the insurance company, right? Yeah. Like if you get in a car wreck, yeah. they don't necessarily want to No, they don't want to pay you. It costs money to pay you, right. So it's the same thing. The VA does the same thing to all these men and women 
um, and, and in today's modern time, back then they were just, they had no idea what they were doing yeah. in Vietnam. Today's modern time, they got smart and they're, they're they fight their they own veterans. They to eliminate people like from that. Yeah. Com- like car insurance companies. When you get car, even health insurance. I, I've seen cases oh, where the woman, with a person would have a cancer, like a woman would have cancer. And it was like, well, you didn't tell us about the excessive bleeding that you had in your 20s. And so we don't know if we should be able to pay them. Like stuff like that. Right, like, it's well, remember you got in a car accident when you were 16? You didn't write this down. Right, you didn't like, make that down. We're not going to pay for this treatment now yeah. that you have cancer because the cancer, you know, I mean, how do we know it's not a injury in your uterus from yeah, this car accident? From the car accident. The car accident I did it. When you're 16? <laughs> oh, no. I mean, do you have evidence of it? I mean, that's where we're at, It right? is horrible. And I would I'd go further. Even the thing for, like, people in general, for me, especially the elderly. Because to me, they've spent their entire life basically working in this country. And whatever they were doing, whatever service, whatever skill they were providing, whatever maternal support or vice versa— they did that the entirety of their lives. And then to get to the end of their life and you have to fight with the government oh, yeah. for Social Security. Like, it is like, why? I mean, don't you, on some level, that money is almost showing a respect, a thank you, um, right. a notion that as a society, we value a population. And when people get older, they're less able to work. So we're going to basically take care of them now that they basically gotten to that point after giving their entire life to them. It just seems like well, there's a social contract built into this stuff. There should be. And responsibilities that are flagrantly ignored when the person finally comes back and says, where's my ticket? Theoretically, yes. Because in our prime, our working age, like I'm pointing to you and I, we're in our prime working age, right? Yeah. We got another 20 years ahead of us tomorrow before I don't know. we got to retire, right? Like that's yeah. theoretically. It's, it's that's, a while, right? Theoretically, that's 20 more years. So right now we're at like the peak, right? In our in our 40s, like you're at your peak of your, your career mm-hmm. and you're you know, you ride that out for a while. You're a cog in the machine, though. Right. Because you are part of the U.S., the capitalistic system. Right. You're, you're a buyer. You're a seller. You're mm-hmm. part of this money-making That's scheme. Right. That's right. And then 20 years from now, when we're in our 60s and we go file for, you know, our Medicare and all that stuff, and you, then they're going to fight you when you're like, oh, I got this ailment. Five years later, yeah. right? You're like, oh, well, does part A cover that? Yep. That's, does part, that's the, wait, that's part the conversation. B only does this? Oh, but part C, I don't have my dental. It yep. doesn't cover, it only covers cleanings, but not root canals. Because Medicare cavity. doesn't cover dental. Exactly. It so if you're like, uh, you have to pay extra yourself. That's right. When it's like, well, wait a minute. I just, I've been working since I was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And now I'm 67. I've been working 50 years. And like, now where, you're leaving me into my own devices? And I need to pay extra because I have a cavity? Yes. Like, what? Yes. What kind of system is this? It's like, well, it's a dentist. It's not healthcare. You're right. telling me that my teeth aren't part of my healthcare? Right. I mean, that could be indicative of heart disease and all that I, stuff. Absolutely. Like neurological problems. That's right. All kinds. Of, but yeah, that's that. So if our government does that to our soldiers, it's even worse. Yeah. For us. Yeah. So and all of it is for the rest the of us because we're just cogs. Right. Like, Cogs like the other the guys that pick up arms and go fight overseas to, you know, achieve these these objectives. Yeah. At least the U.S. government views them as like as a, they have a purpose. Yeah. Us, we're all disposable. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's the sad part. I mean, right. they're disposable, too, but they view the whole of American, you know, civilization, the, the people. Yeah. If you're not an elite, we're all disposable. And it's sad. I mean, there should be. At the very least, a population of people should care about the population of people, right? Like, you know, we don't eat other human beings because we don't, there's a, some recognition that right. there's something behind there and that thing is kind of like me. And so I care about it because it's kind of like me. That thing is but, like me. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but in this case, 
Not so much. Uh, you're perfectly right. I think a thousand percent correct. Cog in the machine. Cog in the machine. Let's do this. Let's get to our headlines. In the news. A gunman fired a barrage of bullets at a July 4th Independence Day parade on downtown Highland Park, Illinois, on Monday, killing six marchers and wounding 24 others. A suspect in the parade shooting identified as Robert Bobby Cremo III, 22, has been arrested by the police. On Monday, the Gun Violence Archive said that at least 11 mass shootings have occurred across the United States since Friday night, leaving a dozen people killed and scores injured. The mass casualty shooting comes less than two weeks after President Joe Biden signed a bipartisan gun safety bill into law, which he dubbed the most important legislation in decades, and to which I would add, it's not going to do anything to fix these large shootings. Just saying. Let's keep going. The U.S. House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol could make multiple criminal referrals, including of former President Donald Trump. The panel's vice chair, Representative Liz Cheney, said it in an ABC News interview on Sunday. I'll believe it when I see it. The bipartisan committee has been a self-appointed mission to gather evidence arguing that Trump, quote, oversaw and coordinated, unquote, a plan to overturn the 2020 election, which he claimed was rigged to favor his Democratic rival, Joe Biden. However, the lawmakers cannot themselves charge anyone with a crime. When Cheney was asked whether a criminal referral of Trump for further prosecution was possible, she replied, yes. Cheney went on to say that the panel will possibly, quote, have a view on, unquote, whether Trump should be prosecuted. Yeah, they have a view on it. That's secondary to the point of whether they can do anything about it or get the prosecution. Let's keep going. Pete, let's see, Arendondo, Arendondo, chief of Yuval Consolidated Independent School District Police Department, has signaled that he will be stepping down He will be stepping down from a separate elected position as the district continues to grapple with the tragic loss of more than a dozen elementary school children and two educators. If I'm not mistaken, it was 18 kids and two educators while his cops hid outside as bang, 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 18 more times. That's what they did. This was the guy that was in charge as that guy was executing kids and his cops basically stood back and prevented the parents from even going in to save their own children. Astonishing stuff. Quote, after much consideration, I regret to inform those who voted for me that I've decided to step down as a member of the city council for District 3. This is what Pete said in a statement provided by the Uvalde Leader News. Quote, the mayor, the city council, and the chief of staff must continue to move forward without distractions. Unquote. Um, Pete Arendondo was appointed to the Uvalde City Council on May 7th and was sworn in on May 31st, a week after the school shooting at Robb Elementary School. His resignation comes shortly after the city council denied his request for an extended leave of absence amid public scrutiny. Oh, can I take a break? No. No. Stand in the sunlight and take the heat. Let's keep going. In international news, the Baltic Sea will become an, quote, internal basin unquote, of the NATO bloc after Finland and Sweden joins the alliance with every country bordering the sea, barring Russia and its enclave of Kaliningrad, I'm sorry, exclave of Kaliningrad to be part of the alliance. Polish President Andrzej Duda has boasted, quote, the Baltic Sea is essentially poised to become NATO's internal basin. Two very powerful nations with a long and strong military tradition will become part of the NATO, will become NATO soon, extending the Russian-NATO border by 1,400 kilometers, which is no doubt bad news for Russian authorities, unquote, Duda said during a meeting of Poland's Security Council on Monday, expressing hope that Finland and Sweden are accepted quickly and that their membership is ratified by NATO's 30 members. Duda stressed that there was, quote, no need for explanation on how important this decision is for us, unquote. Hey, here's the thing. (laughs) Erdogan 
still has you by the testicles, as I mentioned earlier. And if you're not going to do what he tells you to do, and if you and Joe Biden are going to back away from those promises, Finland and Sweden are not going to be part of NATO. So I would say don't count your chickens before those chickens are hatched. But, you know, hasn't stopped him up to this point. President Joe Biden is expected to roll back some of Trump-era tariffs on Chinese products or imports as early as next week, including, according to some insiders, by Wall Street Journal. The decision, which could include a pause on tariffs on consumer goods ranging from clothes to school supplies, would likely to be complemented by broader policy allowing importers to request tariff waivers, added the report. The decision is believed to be prompted by the need to address skyrocketing inflation, which rose unexpectedly last month to a fresh four-decade high of 8.6%, according to U.S. Labor Department. By the way, that doesn't include energy, just to be very clear. However, the move will attempt to strike a balance between cutting consumer costs while maintaining pressure on Beijing states to public So you're removing tariffs because you're in such dire economic condition. You know you're in a dire economic condition. You're removing them out of weakness, not out of strength. And you still put in a line, we're still trying to keep pressure on Beijing. Okay. Okay. Good luck with that. Gunfire from Israel's position was, quote, likely responsible for the death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akhail. I think is was um, what? Akleh. Akleh, thank you. U.S. officials have concluded after examining the bullet, which they received from Palestinian authorities in order to conduct a, quote, independent ballistic examination. Palestinian authorities should be bright enough to know that United States evaluating the bullet is not an independent evaluation when it comes to Israel. I don't even know why they think that. The United States, quote, found no reason to believe that there was intentional, rather, the result of tragic circumstances during an IDF-led military operation against factions of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, unquote, State Department spokesman, Ned Price said on Monday. Price said that the ballistic examination was inconclusive due to the fact that the bullet was badly damaged. Look, the issue is not that the bullet was damaged. Nobody cares about the bullet. How on earth can you look at a bullet and determine the intention of the the individual um, that shot it? It's the issue of the person who she is wearing a press shirt that says press, and they put a bullet in her. They killed her on purpose because they didn't like her reporting being critical of Israel. Now, you're not going to get that as an honest assessment from the United States, which is why I have no idea why the Palestinian Authority thought they were going to get some kind of honest assessment out of this test. That's astonishing. Let's keep one more, and we we, um, close it after this. Growing concerns over rampant inflation and aggressive use of classic monetary tools for the U.S. Central Bank have fanned fears of recession across Wall Street and in Washington, reported Politico. President Joe Biden may have insisted that, quote, that, quote, there's nothing inevitable, unquote, about a U.S. recession, but repeating that mantra is unlikely to make it a reality, claim analysts. According to Wall Street is increasingly, accordingly, Wall Street is increasingly building a gloomy possibility of a recession into its forecast. A brief yellow, I'm saying a brief yet shallow recession could start in the next three months of the year, according to Dana Peterson, the chief economist of the conference board, speaking at a women's rule event cited by Politico. Michael Fiorella, or Fiorelli, the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan Chase, believes that the downturn could start as soon as this quarter, as he pointed to consumers beginning to slow. Quote, things are looking like we're losing altitude pretty quickly, unquote, he was cited as saying. And there's one more that I got to read. I just read the top part. This is J.P. Morgan. Global oil prices could reach stratospheric $380 a barrel if the United States and European penalties prompt Russia to inflict retaliatory crude output cuts. J.P. Morgan Chase and company analysts warned. And it has to do with the price cap idea. That basically, if they stop, oil will shoot through the roof. This plan is utterly and completely ridiculous. J.P. Morgan. Hashtag. 
Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on, excuse me, radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. So last week, Joe Biden had the weird distinction, the thought, and maybe he didn't necessarily overly think about it. But Biden comes out. Okay, we're finished with the music now. Thank you very much. Good looking out. So Biden comes out and Biden basically makes a statement saying he was asked, very good question. How long should Americans have to deal with high oil prices? How long? Americans are paying $5 a gallon, which is shocking for something like Richmond. And yet, there they are. California, when I was there, is at $7 a gallon. They're probably going to go up. And again, based on this price cap idea, the gentleman who asked the question basically said, analysts say that gas could go up to $200 a barrel. J.P. Morgan is saying if they go through with this harebrained, wishful thinking price cap idea, it could go up to $380 a barrel, nearly $400 a barrel. And so Biden asked this question, basically says indefinitely that the American households will have to take on and bear this particular burden indefinitely into the future for Ukraine. Let's start having a conversation about this. We have the one and only Ted Rawl. Ted Rawl is a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at Ted Rawl and read his cartoons and articles at Rawl.com. Ted, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? I'm good, Jamal. How are you? So far, so good. By the way, how was your fourth? My fourth was uh, low-key and uh, relaxed, and it was fun. How about yours? It was good. It was good. I got to see family and everything else. I went to Richmond. Um, the overwhelming majority was on point. I'm, I want to get your take on this. No, none of us got shot at. That, that, no no one's on the rooftop. That's a good start. Listening to shooting all night, but yeah, nobody um, got shot. But, but I want to get your take on Biden's statement, because I— I've never heard a president, usually presidents are very skittish with high gas because they know that that directly affects the way the public perceives them. Well, in this particular situation, Biden is basically saying the United States is committed to keeping a government that was overthrown in place, even if that means that American households are going to have to take a hit with inflation being at 40, 50 years highs. And that doesn't even touch food, by the way, right, or energy. Um, And they're going to have to deal with this indefinitely. I was shocked at that statement. It's not that I was shocked that he thought it, meaning that's what I assumed. But for him to basically come out and say it so brashly, like, yes, American households are going to have to take the hit. Hashtag Ukraine. What is your take on this? This seems astonishing to me. And when you look at the polling and you look at some of, I believe it was the NBC News poll that came out recently. Well, the American households are taking a hit. They're terrified of the economy. And their thought is the economy is going to get worse. They have recession fears that recession um, is around the corner, that their current living situation, they've gotten poorer. And the entire polling was basically going through showing that the focus of the American public was squarely on the issue of the economy. They were taking a hit due to the inflation and what Biden is doing. That has that is going to have monstrous political consequences. I guess the question is, what would those political consequences be? And is it going to go beyond just this notion of 
a changeover in the House and the Senate and the presidency. Meaning, is there a political change here that takes place as a result of the actions of the president, especially if Donald Trump gets on stage? Let's say Trump runs and Trump gets on stage and turns to Biden and say, you are running a Ukraine first policy. You overthrew that government. I mean, it like goes in on him in the same way that he went on um, George Jeb Bush about the war. Does that change a political context in a country where we lose this thread of the neocons being, let's say, um, in the room and directing U.S. policy just because you had a president who was, let's say, a bit skittish of going into those wars and is using this as a political touchstone in order to go after his opposition? What is your thought on that? Is that too far? Do you think that Trump or anybody on the Republican side will go that far to make an argument to basically put a knife in his opposition considering that what is taking place now can be squarely put on the shoulders of Democrats and what is happening right now is decimating the American public. What are your thoughts? Well, um, there's a lot to unpack there, Jermall. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to start with, you know, where are we right now? Mm -hmm. I, I don't think we're at the point now where for the midterms, any Republican is going to make that case to the American public because, you know, they're both war parties, the Republicans <laughs> and the Democrats, and they're not going to say, OK, you know, we've got to. The, the mistake was to go uh, was to give uh, tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine and impose these sanctions that are now uh, really hurting American uh, motorists and uh, and consumers in general. They're just not. They got. They were completely on board with that. Yeah. They can't possibly uh, un, uh, you know walk away from it, and it's not their inclination to do that. However, you know, you brought up Donald Trump. If Trump is the nominee, or for that matter, is a is a key player in the Republican primaries, uh, as opposed to say someone more conventional like Ron DeSantis. Uh, he's going. He, he really could go in that direction because he did it before, like you, as you pointed out. And uh, you know, he Trump had sort of has two. There's two reasons that this could work for him. First of all. His people will follow him anywhere. Uh, right. He was the only Republican to ever run as sort of an anti-war or a war skeptic or a less militaristic Republican uh, and then, you know, prevail. And it, it turns out that, you know, he sort of exposed, you know, the old that the old Pat Buchanan wing of the Republican Party was still alive and well, buried under the neocons. Um, he could do that. Uh, he, you know, I, I think things will also be a lot clearer by then. They're, they're becoming really clear now to the average consumer, and not just because of what Joe Biden admitted, truthfully, uh, that this could go on indefinitely. I mean, look, if the United States decided to turn on Ukraine tomorrow and, and turn off and decide to turn off the the, uh, the supply of, of weapons and, and uh, cash to the Zelensky government, uh, it wouldn't, it's still, there would still be this long lingering after effect inflationary spiral that's been set in motion uh, by these, by these, by these events that, that would take a long time to bring down for a soft landing. So it's going to, but if they're not doing that, they're accelerating it, they're continuing it. And, you know, you do get to a certain point where, uh, you know, this was, this war was sold to the American public as one thing that it clearly is turning out not to be, which is to say, you know, Ukraine just needs a little help. Uh, they'll win. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the government is a, you know, perfect Jeffersonian democracy uh, without any corruption whatsoever. You know, all of these things are, you know, obviously being exposed. And at a certain point, every time Americans pull up to the pump every few days, uh, they're getting angrier and angrier and more annoyed and more frightened. So um, I think the politics of it are, well, look, the, you know, 
there's Democrats are engaging in some in some very wishful thinking uh, about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. They really, you know, today the the Times and the Post were talking about how maybe there's ways that the that the Democrats will be able to retain the Senate uh, because of that. I, I'm you know, extremely skeptical that that's true. I, I think you know we we all know what's in the mail uh, for on the on the first on the first Tuesday in November this year, and it's going to be a big Republican victory. And then you know where are we next? Where are we next spring? Well, you know you have a you have a lame duck president, uh, a lame duck vice president, um, you know, and and a, a party that doesn't have a farm system. So. Uh, and I think the Ukraine thing and the you know the will start to be something that thing, people start to think about. There's also rising skepticism in the press, but we're at that trend right now. We can sort of see what's coming, but I don't think the public's focused on it yet. But it's coming. Mm. There's another question, kind of in this mindset. Also, we read a story the other day that Fox News ran for the fourth, and it's the fourth, so I thought it would be interesting to ask. And I'll just read it. It seems that the 2022 year appears to be quite challenging for U.S. national pride, with Fox News polls showing that the majority of Americans are feeling less proud of their country. As of June 2022, only 39% of U.S. citizens take pride in America, with the number dramatically shrinking from 2017 figure of 51%, and far less than 69% reporting on 2011. More than half of Republicans, 60%, and 64% of independents respondents say they are not proud of the United States today, with Democrats going toe-to-toe at 46% proud 48%, not so much. The figures are stark contrast to those in 2017 when Republicans by a 31-point margin and independents by four points were proud. Men are now more likely to be disenchanted in the United States in 2017, with only 41% of them proud today compared to 2017 figure of 58%. Women in turn weren't too proud in 2017, only 44% back at the time, with the number shrinking to 36% to 2022. Basically, what that means, though, there seems to be a precipitous drop in regards to how people, I don't know. I, I mean, it depends on what they mean by pride, right? Like how they feel about the country. And I suspect some of that is probably going with the country direction, what they believe the country should be in context of what it is. But it seems that the, that number is going inexorably down. Why? I, I, was, I was fascinated by this poll. What reason do you think that the public is basically taking the sentiment? You know, I, I think it's it's kind of funny. Um, you know, there's always reasons to be ashamed of your country, like, say, Guantanamo, uh, or uh, reasons to, you know, to be proud of your country, like the way that many Americans, you know, rallied uh, to, to fight the coronavirus. Uh, and so, like, what's your metric, right? I mean, it, it's completely, the, me- the metric, as you say, as you allude to, is completely arbitrary and subjective. I mean, for me, I have a strong suspicion that it's a lot of this is Biden that, you know, the, the figure, the fact that we don't really have, we have a figurehead president. We don't have uh, any kind of sense of, of leadership. Even bad leadership is better than no leadership. There's, you know, this, this is a white house adrift. Uh, there's, you know, the president barely ever turns up on television to read a speech, much less talk to the press. Um, you know, you, you, it's hard to be proud of your country when, you know, a country with a strong presidential system has a weak president. And it's also, I think, there's exhaustion from the two years of the pandemic and the post-lockdown phase that this sort of still seems to be dragging along. There's a sense that this is a country that, you know, its government can't really get things done um, for the American people. You know, the, the, the for me, the interesting thing about the court rulings is, you know, obviously they expose 
that even in, when an issue is popular with the public, say abortion rights or yeah. gun control, uh, by an overwhelming majority, that it doesn't matter because the Congress is so incapable of acting to to address the stance that uh, that most people have that it ended up that the Supreme Court had been legislating from the bench, and these are now reversals of legislating from the bench. I mean, you know, Roe v. Wade, I mean, abortion rights should have been codified in federal law many, many years ago, yes. as an example. So I think there's just sort of this sense like, you know, what is going on? You know, we're paying high prices, we're paying high taxes, uh, everything kind of just sucks. <laughs> and I, I think that's, I think it kind of boils down to that. Yeah, speaking of everything just sucking, I mean, I don't know how much you heard of my my rant with Jamarl about how our healthcare in this mm -hmm. country sucks and Medicare, Medicaid sucks. And then let me add this to it because this is just breaking from the AP. Uh, I'm going to read this to you and I want your response on this because, you know, our healthcare system sucks. Uh, it says <laughs> a federal judge ruled in favor of three major U.S. drug distributors in a landmark lawsuit that accused them of causing a health crisis by distributing 81 million pills over eight years in one West Virginia county ravaged by opioid addiction. Now, that's 81 million opioid painkillers in a, a county in West Virginia. The verdict came nearly a year after closing arguments in a bench trial in the lawsuit filed by Cable County and the city of Huntington against Amerisource Virgin Drug Co., Cardinal Health Inc., and McKesson Corp. Quote, the opioid crisis has taken considerable tolls on the citizens of Cable County and the city of Huntington. And while there is a natural tendency to assign blame in such cases, they must be decided not based on sympathy, but on the facts and the law. That is from U.S. District Judge David Faber writing in his 184-page ruling. He says, In view of the court's findings and conclusions, the court finds the judgment should be entered in the defendant's favor, which is the big drug companies. So we've seen a mishmash of this because some other, you know, in other counties, other states. But they won. They, the the plaintiffs have won, which are, you know, like families of survivors or what have you. Um, we've seen uh, the Purdue Pharma people go under. They've had to file for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. But yet this one town in West Virginia, the three big drug distributors, 81 million opioids in eight years. That's 10, more than 10 million pills a year in one county. How does that make any sense? in the medical system <laughs> in that county. And then for the judge to, I mean, I don't get it. Well, yeah, I don't get it either. I mean, you know, I would have to, I'm not a lawyer and I'd have to like read, I'd have to read the, the read up on the case and uh, understand exactly, you know, how they interpreted or misinterpreted the law. Um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of respect for judges generically. There are some good ones and there <laughs> are a lot of bad ones. Um, and I, I, I've personally seen that. As a in rule court. of thumb, I just don't like, I don't trust I judges. <laughs> Yeah, I don't trust judges. I mean, I trust juries far more than I trust judges. Um, you know, judges, uh, you know, they, they, they come to the thing about a, the jury system is that it's sort of, um, you know, you, you, all you need is one really smart person out of 12. Uh, you know, with a, with a judge, you need one really smart person out of one. Uh, so that's those are I don't like those odds. 
And, um, you know, it, it, it often plays out very poorly. Um, and, you know, judges count, judges often have an agenda, whereas, uh, you know, jur- for the most part, most jurors have never thought about the issue at hand before they, be, they, before they were impaneled. Um, and yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, it's well established that Big Pharma has been has definitely knew, uh, you know, how uh, oxytoxin, oxycodone, and all these other, uh, you know, opioid, uh, you know, painkillers have, you know, highly addictive. They knew that they were being overprescribed. They knew why. They didn't care because they were raking in the cash. I mean, it's more than they didn't care. They were happy about it. It's like it's very analogous to big tobacco. I mean, you know, obviously it is tricky because these are legal products. And if they're prescribed by doctors, then, you know, who's the who's the pharmaceutical company to say that a doctor shouldn't prescribe it? Um, And I'm sure that's a big part of their defense. Like, hey, we just make them. You know, we don't prescribe them. So, um, you know, it's sort of like the gun manufacturers. We make a legal product. You know, what do you want from us? Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, yeah, no, it, it's a little sickening. I mean, you're talking, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from uh, Dayton, Ohio, which uh, was hit very hard by the, by the opioid pa- uh, pandemic. And, uh, you know, it's just devastating. They, at one point, they were running out of places to store the bodies at mm, the morgue. Oh, my God. Um, and so, uh, you know, mostly young men, uh, some young women, but, you know, obviously it affects everybody and it's devastated entire communities across the Midwest and, you know, other places. So, no, it's, it's, I mean, yeah, the healthcare system, don't even get me started. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I mean, like right now, I, you know, I'm paying like, uh, I'm paying like $700 a month for a silver healthcare plan through the ACA that I literally can't use. Because if I go to uh, if I if I get drugs through it, it's not covered because of the you know basically everything has like a massive uh, copay or whatever uh, and but and so I end up ordering my drugs from Canada. So I'm kind of like, why do I even have wow. this insurance? I I know it's good like if I get hit by a bus, but if I get hit by a bus, they're only going to cover half of you know those expenses, only half, and I'd be liable for the rest. So it, it is, it's a ridiculous, obscene system. Oh, that is horrendous. Wow. That is so horrendous. Um, I want to go to the Supreme Court case in the way that it affected New so York. Speaking of judges. Well, speaking of judges, and for the matter, I guess, shootings. Um, what? We had on July 4th, 4th of July, somebody was celebrating with a gun. And that celebration led him to climb a roof and basically mow down people who were at down celebrating at a parade. Right. Um, New York had gun legislation that basically went was struck down by the Supreme Court. And it says uh, right here, the court's uh, New York. It struck down the decision for New York's law requiring a license to be possessed, meaning a person had to have a license for a firearm or they had to have a good reason for having that firearm. Well, the Supreme Court says, yeah, no, that's a fail. What's your take on that strike now? Because Manila and I had the conclusion of like, well, the Supreme Court was correct here. It, I don't necessarily right. want to have to justify me carrying a gun to a cop. And why is it like- fair why are you any lesser of a valuable person than Jamie Dimon? Exactly. Nobody, the cop is not going to give Jamie Dimon a hard time. They go, okay, well, he's rich. He has a reason to have it. But for me, I'm going to be held to the whim of the cop to make a choice one way or the other. And I could be living in a bad neighborhood, but the cop may look at it and say, well, the reason a bad neighborhood, the neighborhood is bad is because people keep carrying guns. So we're trying to stop them from carrying guns. But yeah, I'm not a bad guy. Like, I, I just thought the law went too far and it was unfair. Right. And SCOTUS says, nope. Nope. Y'all can carry guns. Yeah. So you guys just passed a new gun law, and apparently they were basically trying to tighten and strengthen Ohio State's gun laws. What is your take on the Supreme Court taking that down first? Because we were looking for somebody who disagreed with that. 
<laughs> like in right, general. Jamar, yeah, it was weird for Jamar and I to both agree on that one. Yeah, because it was <laughs> like, all right, I'm not a huge gun person. I think people should be able to use them, but this feels weird. But the, yeah, that specific law in your state, you're, you're now home. Yeah. You know, specifically said before that it it was left to the the woman, the cop, the women, and right the the cop to justify if somebody big, powerful, and important like yeah. Jamie Dimon can carry one, but the average citizen couldn't. But see, New York hated that choice. They hated that decision. Right. So were and, they happy? That and that's this all, happened? right. And it's a lot of lefties complaining that the court was reckless. They didn't know what they were doing. What's your take on it? Well, you have not found someone who disagrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I personally, uh, I thought it was correct. I always thought it was crazy. Look, you have a Second Amendment. A Second Amendment says that you can that you can that you can certainly buy a pistol. Uh, if you can buy a pistol, you can carry a pistol. Otherwise, what good is it? Yeah. And 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 why is New York different from every other state? It's not. So there's no reason. Um, there was never any good basis for that law. By the way, just to clarify, the the way that the law worked was it wasn't like. Uh, if the cop discovered you with a gun, that you then had to explain it to the cop. The way it worked was that you had to register for with the NYPD or other police agency uh, in order to get a carry permit. And then you carried that around and you could show it to the cop. Uh, but it's still effectively the same thing, but you had to do it in advance. And the, the famously, they used to release lists of people who had carry permits, and they always read like uh, a list of bold-faced names uh, in New York City. You know, they, they were famous, they were celebrities, they were business owners, CEOs. Uh, you know, all sorts of people like that. A lot of people in the media, by the way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's not like, a, you know, it was totally based on privilege. I mean, some of it makes sense, sort of. It was like, or should say made sense. Like, you know, if you were, if you owned a, a business that required you to do a night deposit. Right, with or a like big a diamond dealer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you work on 47th Street in the Diamond District and yeah, that kind of thing. So that made sense sort of but it was always arbitrary it never made sense I, I i thought you know i think look the u the u.s supreme court these rulings including and i'm going to go so far as to say roe v wade as well uh -oh. uh, it, these are these are rulings that I, I i think they're constitutionally pretty sound i mean the what's happened is like with same-sex marriage you know it they ended up legal legalizing it uh, you know, in a back, in a using from the, from the bench and it should have been, I mean, same sex marriage should be legal, but it should be done. It should have been, it was the legislature's job. They abdicated right. their responsibility right. and then the Supreme court did it. Right. And so, you know, this right wing court whose politics I disagree with, um, however, they, you know, they are kind of, you know, they are following the constitution here. Interesting. That's, it's such a, you know, to have all of these these rulings come yeah. down from SCOTUS. I think number one, it's sad because it shows where we are with our elected officials yeah. Yeah. who, like you said, as you pointed out, Ted, that they've abdicated on their actual jobs. It's like what other, what in the private sector, what other job can you have None. where you sit around, you know, twiddling your thumbs, tweeting things, <laughs> I don't know, putting stuff on Instagram, and then you actually have no deliverables and no end results to turn into your boss. Right. And when your boss is like the 330 million other Americans, like, and we're all complaining, how, how do you still have a job? 
Like, that's what SCOTUS has highlighted to me over the past several months, is that it shows us how feckless these people are that are sitting up in this ivory tower. Yeah, well, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, I I think, you know, there's some of these things that, like, surprised me. Like, I didn't know contraception isn't really technically legal under U.S. law. Really? Like, I didn't... What? That, that hinges on a Supreme Court decision? Like, what? I mean, who believes in that, right? I mean, even, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, cons- very conservative Republicans, uh, pro-life Republicans in, you know, rural Mississippi, most of them believe contraception should be legal. Um, you know, nobody, this is not, this is a settled issue. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the fact is they're, yeah, meanwhile, they're they're sitting around, you know, wasting their time uh, on issues that really are, are trivial. I mean, while they're trying to figure out how to rename a post office or whatever, maybe legalize contraception. Right. <laughs> I mean, what, it, 1973 was Roe v. Wade? And I guess my thought was they had like 50 years to codify it into law. I mean, other countries, when they have a government that can't get anything done, they dissolve the government. That's why Israel, what, five governments that they basically dissolved? And and I always point this out, being a Californian, a native Californian, we are one of five states in this whole union with a a governor recall. We don't, I mean, nobody, why don't we have recalls like this? I don't get it. Why can't we recall these people after you try them out for a year (laughs) and they show that like all they do is tweet and put out Instagram posts? Well, here's the question. Why can't we get rid of them? Both of you two. If you had... I think of recalls in a way I think of the filibuster, where as long as people are relatively honest, if they look at America as being higher than their political ambitions, then it's like, okay, I'm not going to overly use the filibuster because I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to break the political process. But then the moment that you get more craven, all of a sudden it is the norm to use it. It becomes the thing that they continuously use purely for political reasons, not because it's anything legit. Um, Would recalls get to be that way where both parties, because consider where we are. The Democrats. Look at the UK parliament. Yes. They recall people yes, all the time. all the time. Right. The government falls all the time. But, well, I mean, well, no, the whole government doesn't get overturned, you know. Like, no, it's I just not mean, like the Israeli parliament. <laughs> no, they just call it the government collapses, meaning whoever was running the government at the time, it but, falls and they put somebody else see, in I to kinda, run it. I kind of like that, that yeah. they can kick idiots out of office pretty quickly but there. See, that's a parliament, though. Like, right. it, it, and it's a, it's but, more direct democracy. Yeah, it's far more direct. I guess my thing is, will it get to the point where the recalls become a standard, meaning— it's used purely because look, the first election between Trump and between I'm sorry, that Trump won, they didn't give him credit for that. I mean, they literally tried to take the president out in a soft coup right. over something that didn't exist. They wouldn't sure, even accept it was a, a Trump, Russia hoax. A Russia hoax. It wasn't even something that they'd accept. You get into Trump, Trump basically doesn't want to leave and tries <laughs> to do the same thing. Basically said Biden cheated, et cetera. So both political parties at this point no longer accepts the veracity of the claim to office. That's astonishing. That was a red line for the for God knows how long, for the entirety of this country. So would they allow that if they had the recalls, would it just become back and forth, back and forth? Well, I, I think that would be, I think it would be a good thing because then people know that they're replaceable uh-huh. because these people, I mean, look at Dianne Feinstein has been my senator since I was like in middle school. Yeah, she's not going to 50 at this and, point. I mean, she's, she's 84, 87, maybe. I mean, she looks not going to 50. I know. I'm going with that. I know. And, and, and she's on, <laughs> and she is on like the social media committee, right? This like 90 year old lady. <laughs> I mean, God bless her heart, but she is like a 90-year-old lady and on a social media committee in the Senate and 
She literally, I've literally watched her and I was in the room during this time, uh, many, many years back when Mark Zuckerberg came in, came to the Hill. I think it was his first time. And Dianne Feinstein asked something very, like, trivial. Like, she didn't know. Right. Right. She obviously was an old grandma asking a question like, so how does this Facebook work? The Facebook. (laughs) And where I was like, oh my God, why is she on this committee? So somebody like that, that has been there for eons, right? Eons in her job. She, she doesn't, there's no risk to her losing her job because one, California is hard, hard blue, hard blue. She is safely secure as the Senator from California. Nobody's going to get rid of her and nobody can stand up to her because her coffers are filled to the brim. Right. And Yet she's here's this little old lady that that literally doesn't know how to like put up a Facebook yeah. post and asking questions of Mark Zuckerberg. So someone like that, like yeah, you should be able to to Recall. hit the hit the eject button. Yeah, like lady, time to retire. Eject, get out. But we don't have that ability. And I think when people know that there's a consequence to them sucking, like if they know, like they suck, they yeah. they don't perform that they can be replaced by somebody else. Yeah. So I think that's that's better if we had a recall. What's your thought, Ted? You know, I'm not a big fan of uh, of, of recalls. Uh, I like parliamentary systems much better than uh, America's two-party, uh, you know, pseudo-democracy. Yeah. Uh, definitely give me a parliamentary system. But, you know, I don't see, um, you know, like, for example, the big uh, recall, California recall election that, that deposed Governor Gray Davis and uh, ended up with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger replacing him. You know, Gray Davis didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he, you know, he, he would not have been impeachable. He probably would have won re-election. He didn't, there was no scandal. He wasn't incompetent. You know, he wasn't a, a jerk. He was just, you know, a guy with political enemies. And, you know, they they, they went after him. Yeah. And I worry about, you know, and I, I'm, you know, I'm not a fan of Gavin Newsom, but again, the, the recent attempt to recall him seemed like an unnecessary, like waste of taxpayer money and but a distraction yeah. from, you know, I mean, again, I don't think he did anything that deserved it. I mean, we have an opportunity to recall a governor every four years. It's called an election. Right. And, you know, you think about like someone like like Feinstein, who has been there for thousands of years. <laughs> she, she, never, I mean, she gets reelected every six years, right? And, see, I mean, and that's the other thing. If you recalled her, she may problem. just win the election, by the way. Like, that's the that's other point. That's true, too. Like, if, she, if her coffers are full. And right, she the has, whole system has to, that's what I'm saying. We need to, like, overhaul this whole system because— yeah. I mean, it's we've created an environment for this political duopoly because it's based on big money. Yes. And only people with big, deep pockets can play. 90% of the um, races are the one better side with the most cash. You don't even need the political identity. Think about that. I don't even need to know your political identity. How much money you got? Right. Nine times out of ten, you're going to win. Nancy Pelosi makes some calls. You're the anointed one. You're done. That's it. Man. Ted. Thank you for this, man. I always appreciate you um, coming on. And thank you for joining us. The voice that you guys were listening to is Ted Rawl. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at Ted Rawl and read his cartoons at Rawl.com. You guys are listening to Faultlines. Thomas, Chan, we will be back in a moment. We'll be taking your calls. There's no music, but we'll be taking your calls. At 202-521-1320. So give us a call. We're going to take calls right after this break. And she knows about heart. Excellent. Sit, <laughs> sit, sit tight. Fault lines. Fault lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. And we have Tarif from New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? You doing okay this morning? How was your fourth, by the way? Yeah. Um, it was just um, a regular dad in here. I mean, you just me and my uncle and I cooked something for him and me to eat. Yeah. Try to make the best day. Ain't nothing wrong with that. I mean, those are some of the best fourths, right? Where you just kind of sit, chill, and talk. Ain't nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah, but I, I like to have fun though. But anyway, I have comments. <laughs> my first comment, my first comment is free joining science. That's super important. My, uh, okay, that, that's not my first. Excuse me. My first comment is this. You just gave your first comment. So, oh, huh? You just gave your first comment. We're just kidding. By definition. Just, I, I'm, I know, I'm kidding. teasing. We're I'm teasing. Go, go ahead. Go on, I'm, sorry. Go on, I'm sorry. Go on, Tariq. Uh, okay, my first comment. China just accepted a deal with Airbus with uh-huh. uh, a brand deal, geopolitical deal because what that does is it weakens, it weakens the sanctions on Russia dealing with gas because to produce aircraft, large aircraft, you need high energy output. Right. And also, it weakens the hand of NATO by putting... Um, NATO in the Pacific, because if they put NATO in the Pacific, China can withdraw that $37 billion deal, $37 billion deal with 300 Airbus aircraft away from them. So that's a strategic play on China's port to basically win them over with a contract. Yeah. The comment is this. Okay. If Russia, if Russia's preparing for um um winter, the winter war, they are uh, they're gonna they're gonna start uh, having a mass mobilization. When they take over Odessa, which they will, they have to take over Odessa. Which this is gonna happen. This is what Tom Lalongo said, and he's right on this. They're gonna take over the Danube River. The Danube River is a corridor that goes through um, Hungary, Romania. Uh, Serbia, things of that. They, and some of them are part of the EU and some of them part of the um, NATO. Now, what's keeping Hungary part of NATO and, and uh, Serbia or whatever is because they are landlocked. They don't really have leverage. But once Russia takes over and it can transport goods throughout that river, then that would give Hungary and Serbia leverage to either leave NATO or stay in NATO or leave the EU, or leave or stay in um, EU. That would give them a bargaining chip on their shoulder to play off against um, Brussels, Britain, and the United States. And that's why Henry Kinchester said what he said two months ago without saying it, that you need peace now, because he know how important that Danube River is. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Tarif. Always thank you, Tariq. Absolutely. Interesting comment. I, look, I questioned about the Odessa thing also, whether that was going to be um, part of um, the area where they were going to try to take. I well, guess like my, a full land bridge. Yeah. That's the whole, right, like the, the Donetsk area all the way down and curve, yeah. curve down to Odessa. Yeah. And so the question was, you know, would the Russian military go that route in order to take it? Look, I guess it depends on how, far, how long the war goes. I mean, it, you know, all well, of this territory. Biden, he says at least forever. And... <sighs> That is, they look. The Ukraine is losing what a thousand people a day, like casualties. I think two hundred to three hundred, and the number I got to be honest, probably more than that. I mean, they, they're probably lowballing that number. We don't necessarily know as an exact thing, but by their own words, that is an astonishing number of people to lose a day. 
like 1,100 people. I mean, and it seems like it's gotten to the point where the morale has dropped in such a way where the troops seem to be just dispersing. Like, for, like, for example, when Lizzie Chance fell, you had the situation where they were still saying, oh, there's still fighting going on. They didn't even know. They didn't even know. Meaning it wasn't this kind of orderly withdrawal. It was a rout. And if it's continuing to be a rut like this, and the speed at which they're taking these territories seem to be speeding up, what does that mean? What does that mean? And so I, I don't know. If they keep going in this, I, my assessment is that the bargaining is going to get worse. When they finally sit down, which would eventually take place, Russia is going to be able to run the table because the military situation on the ground is basically going to be decided. And the economic situation from the standpoint of the West taking a hit massively, again, they'd be able to run the table. So we'll see. I mean, but that's—I think that happens, though, if it keeps going. I don't necessarily know if that happens just, you know. Yeah, like, you know what? Like, my husband and I were talking this weekend about how both of us are so war-weary yeah. of, like, discussing it wall-to-wall. Yes. And and I think a lot of the, the American media, if you flip through the channels this weekend, most of them are pretty—have moved on. Yeah. From the war because they, well, it's that interesting because we're losing. Yeah. <laughs> That's why, right? Nobody well, likes well, to see a losing they, war. They've already established the narrative, yeah. Right, so you know that the groundwork has been laid, mm-hmm. and so they've kind of moved on. And obviously, we have domestically, we've had a lot of mass shootings. Not to mention shootings, yeah. All the mass shootings have really, you know, taken the wind out of the sails for Volodymyr Zelensky, and he's clamoring, you know, to try to get media attention back yeah. on him. Um, and, and I hate that sometimes I sound so callous and I, I speak of of what's happening to people. Di- this is, at the end of the day, it's still people dying. Right. Right. But I mean, when, when you know, you've been a reporter for so long, it it's not that I'm trivializing. It's just literally no, such a, I know what you're saying. a normal part of, of my daily existence. I know exactly what you're saying. That I've just kind of become like numb, numb to the whole, the, the grief and the sadness of it. Right. Because I, I understand it. And I've I've seen some of it, you know, and I, yeah. I I get it. I was out in the Middle East. I've seen some things, and I, you know, I I get it. I've seen some things. I've bro. seen some things, and, and you know, like you, it, when you talk about it from an analytical standpoint, such as like myself, when you're it's a reporter, intellectual distance to the right, thing that you're talking it's, about. It's a cognitive dissonance of the two things, yeah. right? In order to to achieve your means and do your job, right? So when I talk about it and I kind of sometimes I chuckle or whatever, it's not, it's just because what else can you do? It's the, you know, right. What else can you it's do? It's the situation that you're left with more than anything else. I know exactly what you're saying. Because I confronted that doing this job. Like, I, I, how can I say it? I get enamored by um, meaning in general. And I get enamored by this kind of analytical process of why, what, how it works, what is going to be the outcome, all of that stuff. And so it's like when you're analyzing a war, all of that stuff come together at once. It's clear about the objective and everything else. But you, as you're reporting on it, people are dying. People are losing their lives. Things are being destroyed. Families are being destroyed. But you're looking at it from this kind of weird third-person perspective where you're almost like standing up looking down at the event itself. Right. It's like a bird's-eye view. Yeah. It doesn't feel like you're associated with it. And on some level, you can even feel like what is taking place is minimized as a result of your third-eye view. It's not you're not trying to do that. It's your job. It's your job to kind of give that analysis and everything else. If you're sitting there crying or angry every time you're trying to read it. Your job, you're not going to be able to do your job. You're going to write what you write or what you say is going to be tainted by your emotions. Yes. So, you know, I— It almost, like, requires distance to be built into it. I put the pause. I hit the pause button on feelings. Yeah. And I just look at, you know, what am I seeing? Yeah. What what are are we seeing? Yeah. And what we're seeing is 
love them or hate them, the Russians are winning. Yes. You justify the the war or not, doesn't matter. The end of the day is the Russians are putting these people through a meat grinder. How do we stop the bleeding should be the next question. And nobody in American media is talking about that. And that's what ruins it for me. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. End it on that. Perfect. Perfect summation. Fault Lines. Thomas Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe, welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines... (laughs) With Thomas and Chan, we're getting dun, there. Dun. We're, we're getting there. Uh, shout, we have a new yeah. shout out to to our fill-in engineer Dima. <laughs> we're, figuring <laughs> out, we're figuring out yeah. music and stuff, and I get it because you know I I just got my training wheels That's off. That's right. That's so right. So I get it. I feel it, and and he's filling in. Because the first week, you're like, okay, yeah, I'm wait. Manila from Mithrilla? I, what what is my tag? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, like we had to figure that out for a couple weeks. But, you know, in this case, if you guys are wondering why the music has been off, yeah. it's because we have a lovely fill-in engineer here because yes. he normally does the evening shift. And look, he's phenomenal. And, um, oh, he's a great engineer. Yeah. It's, but it's a new, but yeah. It's, different shift, yeah, different show. different show, different music, different, different, different everything. Stuff. Yeah. So you got to figure out, you know, the buttons and the cues and what the hosts say, when and where, you know. Yeah. So Because at this point, Andre can look at the back of my head. He's like, all right, Jamal's about to do X. Right. Here's the music. Jamal, I mean, yeah, he's, he's like, oh, Jamal said that, press that button. Yeah, right, like, right. It's just automatic. He could be eating a sandwich. Like, right, just like totally yeah. like just drinking his coffee, <laughs> push a button with the other hand, <laughs> kick a switch with his other foot, right. like totally fine. Yo, it was but like, it after takes, you do it for so long. It takes a while. Well, yeah, because you're, you're coming in new. Like, you're just starting from scratch. So it's almost like, all right, this is a new show. They have new sound things. They have right. new music. They have new, new cues. It's like a new last word. And all that stuff is, is new. So, but no, he's phenomenal. He's always been great. Um, but let's do this. Let's get to the headlines because I am going to move my car that is probably very unsafe right now. Um, where's park? Parking was tough today. Parking DC was parking this is, morning. And you know what? Even though there was like no traffic getting in, yeah, I noticed. Coming past the National Mall, mm-hmm. they're still cleaning up from yesterday's like celebrations, Fourth yeah. of July celebrations, and I imagine there's some drunk people that left their cars out <laughs> because there are a lot of cars parked up and down the National Mall. Uh huh. It ain't a holiday. All of this is crowded. It ain't all a holiday anymore, folks. It is July fifth. Get day. your cars off the damn street, so people that work here <laughs> take your drunk ass cars out of here. You drunkards, get your cars out of here. Preach, Manila. People got to go to work. That's right. Damn it. Go move your car tomorrow. Thank you. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Let's head over to some headlines. I'll do some headlines while Jamaro's moving his car. Uh, But yeah, I I believe that is why we don't have enough parking is because a bunch of people were here watching fireworks because we're, you know, this radio station is really, really close to the White House and they do the whole uh, fireworks celebration every 4th of July. So I believe a lot of people came to watch, and then partied a little too hard and left their cars all on the streets. And now there's no parking for people that have to earn their buck. Come on, get your cars out of here, people. All right. 
Let's head over to some national domestic news here. Unfortunately, another mass shooting to report. A gunman has fired a barrage of bullets into a 4th of July Independence Day parade in downtown Highland Park, Illinois. That's near Chicago on Monday. He ended up killing six marchers, wounding two dozen others. The suspect in the parade uh, shooting has now been identified as Bobby Cremo III, only 22 years old. He has been arrested by police. On Monday, the Gun Violence Archive said that at least 11 mass shootings have occurred across the U.S. since just Friday night. So just over the weekend, it's just been a mass shooting weekend for 4th of July. Uh, At least a dozen people in total have been killed this past weekend, scores more injured. The mass casualty shooting comes less than two weeks after U.S. President Biden has signed a bipartisan gun safety bill into law, which he dubbed the most important legislation in decades. Now, speaking of gun violence, Pete Arredondo, the chief of the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District Police Department, has signaled that he will be stepping down from a separate elected position as the district continues to grapple with that tragic loss of nearly 20 school children and two educators. Quote, after much consideration, I regret to inform those who voted for me that I have decided to step down as a member of City Council District 3. Arredondo made that statement provided to the Uvalde Leader News. He continues, The mayor, the city council, and the city staff must continue to move forward without distractions. Arredondo was appointed to the Uvalde City Council on May 7, sworn in May 31, a week after the shooting at Robb Elementary. His resignation comes shortly after the city council denied his request for an extended leave of absence amid this public scrutiny. Then the U.S. House Select Committee to investigate the Jan 6 attack on the United States Capitol could make multiple criminal referrals, including that of former President Donald Trump. That's according to the panel vice chair representative, Republican representative, we should add. Liz Cheney. Yes, she is still officially a Republican. She was talking to ABC News on Sunday. The bipartisan committee has been on a self-appointed mission to gather evidence arguing that Trump, quote, oversaw and coordinated a plan to overturn the 2020 election, which he claimed was rigged to favor Joe Biden. However, lawmakers cannot themselves charge anyone with a crime. They do not have, they're not duly appointed to do that. But Cheney says that they could recommend it, recommend a referral for prosecution. She said, yes, we can, uh, talking ABC. She went on to say that the panel would possibly have a view on whether Trump should or should not be prosecuted. I think we know what that view is. And some international news. The Baltic Sea will become an internal basin of the NATO bloc after Finland and Sweden joined the alliance with every country bordering the sea, barring Russia and its exclave of Kaliningrad to be part of the alliance. That is Polish President Andrzej Duda. He says, quote, the Baltic Sea is essentially poised to become NATO's internal basin. Two very powerful nations with a long, strong military tradition 
will become part of NATO soon, extending the Russia-NATO border by 1,400 kilometers, which is no doubt bad news for Russian authorities. That's Duda talking during a meeting with Poland's Security Council on Monday. Now, he expressed hope that Finland and Sweden are accepted quickly to the bloc and that their NATO membership is ratified by NATO's 30 members, stressing that there was no need for explanation on how important this decision is for us. Now, we should also update that with Recep Erdogan saying, yes, even though I have given my blessing to accept the application, he reminded the other NATO members that it is still up to my parliament to ratify this decision. It's not mine solely, it's my parliament. And we can still decline your application now that it it has been submitted unless you meet all of my demands. So he says, not so fast, buddy. Then President Biden is expected to roll back some Trump-era tariffs on Chinese imports as early as next week, according to insiders cited by the Wall Street Journal. The decision, which could include a pause on tariffs on consumer goods ranging from clothing to school supplies, would likely be complemented by a broader policy allowing importers to request tariff waivers. Now, this is not getting rid of the uh, the sanctions entirely. This is just uh, putting a pause on certain things. The decision is believed to be prompted by the need to address skyrocketing inflation, which rose unexpectedly last month to a fresh four-decade high of 8.6%, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. However, the move will attempt to strike a balance between cutting consumer costs while maintaining pressure on Beijing. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. And then this morning, uh, the finance minister of China also Uh, speaking in a virtual meeting with Janet Yellen, says, yeah, we're not really into these sanctions and you, they're applying pressure back to Janet Yellen saying you need to consider not, not waving, not putting a pause on these things. You need to take them off before, basically before you ruin the whole world's economy because that's the way we're headed. Um, But, you know, we knew that from Xi Jinping back in March when he said that all of these sanctions on Russia was going to have a blowback effect on the whole world. And here we are. And then gunfire from Israeli positions was, quote, likely responsible for the death. I'm going to say no duh to that one. Of the Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, U.S. officials have concluded that after examining the bullet which they received from Palestinian authorities in order to conduct, they say, an independent ballistic examination. The U.S., quote, found no reason to believe this was intentional, but rather the result of tragic circumstances during an IDF-led military operation against factions of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. That coming from State Department spokesman Ned Price. Ned Price also said that the ballistic examination was inconclusive due to the fact that the bullet was badly damaged. So Ned Price Uh, There we are, covering up for Israel, America's best friend in the Middle East, removing any kind of moral imperative action on this, saying that the Israelis, yeah, they shot at Shireen, 
But, you know, the motive, we don't know. We're just going to go with, no, they didn't intend to kill her, but the bullet was theirs. That's all he's saying. Then some economics news here. Growing concerns over rampant inflation and an aggressive use of classic monetary tools by the U.S. Central Bank have fanned fears of recession across Wall Street and in Washington. That's according to Politico. President Biden may have insisted, you remember when he said this, quote, there's nothing inevitable about a U.S. recession, but repeating that mantra is unlikely to make it a reality, the analysts say. Accordingly, Wall Street is building the gloomy possibility of recession into their forecast. They say they're calling it a brief yet shallow recession that could start in the last quarter of this year. So as we get into the fall, uh, Dana Peterson, the chief economist at the conference board speaking at a women rule event, and then Michael Firoli, the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan, believes that a downturn could start as soon as this quarter. As he pointed to consumer spending beginning to slow, our confidence is obviously not there. And he says, quote, things are looking like we're losing altitude pretty quickly. I'm going to roger that. Then some funny news of the day. A kangaroo was on the loose this past weekend in, of all places, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Thought you, you probably thought I was going to say like down under in Australia, but down under south in Baton Rouge. Uh, when his parrot friend opened his cage and set him free. Yes, this is not a Tom and Jerry cartoon. This happened this past weekend. A parrot set loose a kangaroo. According to the East Baton Rouge police, Baxter the kangaroo left his enclosure and made his way through the city before animal control was called about the marsupial's whereabouts. People who spotted the joey hopping along the highways in Zachary said they were in disbelief. Quote, we saw it and we were very shocked. That's Brayden Nelson, a local there. Brayden and Ethan Nelson were driving down Port Hudson Pride Road around late Wednesday morning when they noticed something race by in the drainage ditch. He said, there's a kangaroo on the side of the road. I was like, what are you talking about? I turn around and sure enough, there's a kangaroo, said Ethan. The East Baton Rouge Animal Control have since forced the owner of the kangaroo to give up rights to the animal citing a law that prohibits having them as pets. But at least he's safe. Maybe he will go, you know, to a nice animal sanctuary somewhere and not in a cage. So I, bravo to the parrot. I don't know his name, but the parrot, good for you, buddy. The parrot can be in a cage. The kangaroo should not. He should be at an animal sanctuary. And then this day in history, Back in 1921, players from the Chicago White Sox baseball team accused of throwing the World Series. Get it? Huh? In 1946, France introduces the bikini. In 1955, here in the USA, Rock Around the Clock was number one on the American Billboard music charts. Then in 1971, the voting age here in the U.S., 
is lowered to just 18 years old when the 26th Amendment is ratified. Gosh, that was only in 1971. That was just two years prior to Roe v. Wade. So, you know, that can probably change too. Uh, Well, no, it was amended, 26th Amendment. So I, I don't know, but everything's on its head these days. Then in 1996, some of you might remember this, the first cloning of an animal by scientists in Scotland. Her name, Dolly the Sheep. All right, that is going to do it for your headlines. This Tuesday, July the 5th, you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, along with Jamarl Thomas. Yes, the seat is empty, but he will be right back, folks. But in the meantime, I want to bring in our next guest. Let's bring in Professor Michael Hudson. Michael Hudson is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends, a Wall Street financial analyst, distinguished Research Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Professor Hudson, thank you so much for joining us today. How was your holiday weekend? Uh, well, it was very busy uh, writing some articles for uh, uh, speeches in various countries. I'm sure you kept busy. Uh, unlike the most of us who are kind of hanging out, eating hot dogs and watching fireworks, uh, as we ponder what's going to happen with our economy, we just read some headlines here that Wall Street analysts, um, some from J.P. Morgan, saying that a recession is looming and it could be beginning this quarter, while some others say by this fall. Do you have an outlook on that for us? Well, actually, the economy's been um, in a, a depression since uh, 2008, uh, when the financial crisis uh, occurred, and when President Obama bailed out the banks, uh, instead of writing down the junk mortgage debts uh, to the uh, actual realistic levels, uh, there's been a huge inflation of stock and bond prices and real estate prices in the United States by the central bank and higher housing costs and uh, higher uh, uh, costs for pension funds have actually left much less money to be spent on goods and services. So what's happening now uh, is only an intensification of uh, the slowdown that's already occurring. And uh, right now, uh, housing prices are going up so much more, uh, and uh, oil prices and uh, other uh, monopoly prices are going up so much that uh, there's very little money left by most families to spend on goods and services. And the Federal Reserve reports that half of Americans don't have any savings whatsoever. So they're not prepared for this. So you can just imagine what's happening now uh, when home ownership has already fallen by 10% in the United States. Just since 2008, uh, rents are going way up. 
the cost of living is going up. So, of course, uh, here in New York, uh, you're seeing uh, all sorts of storefronts that are all closed down. Uh, Restaurants are going out of business. Stores are going out of business for rent signs everywhere. So we're already uh, in a a, uh, recession, or really in uh, the aftermath of the Obama Depression. And, of course, bankers are not going to say this uh, out loud because most of the uh, problems are occurring from uh, the economy being so high into debt with uh, interest rates on the credit card debt and the mortgage debt and the student loans going way up that uh, they're, uh, they don't have enough money uh, to buy what's being produced. So, of course, corporate profits are going to go down and employment's going to go down. Yeah, absolutely. We are, we are certainly seeing consumer confidence starting to wane. Um, there was, you know, at the start of the war in Ukraine, there the consumer spending was was actually quite high, and credit card spending was actually uh, increasing. But that has since taken a dramatic shift um, as economists are, are putting out obviously very negative forecasts for the the coming year, and that Christmas is going to be very hard. Now, my question about about these forecasts is. Who is advising Joe Biden that these sanctions were not going to have some kind of catastrophic blowback to the American people when Xi Jinping, very, very early, right after the start of the war in Ukraine, warned Germany, and I I forget another uh, Western counterpart, they had a virtual meeting, and Xi Jinping of China said that he warned against these sanctions on Russia and that he warned that there would be catastrophic economic blowback, blowback, I can't say that word today, uh, that there would be blowback against the rest of the world. Uh, and and we're starting to see that come to fruition. I mean, it, it only took about 100 days for Xi Jinping's prediction to come true. And I mean, it obviously wasn't a prediction. He's surrounded by economists that were forecasting this and what would happen with gas prices, with food prices, with housing he said all of this would be impacted and the whole world would be impacted. And instead, we're seeing the ruble climb. Uh, the, the gas, the oil cartels are making money hand over fist and the American people are suffering. Who is advising Joe Biden or is, you know, is, is, is this the blind leading the blind? Uh, certainly not the blind. Uh, a very right-wing uh, neocon group in the State Department uh, have an almost passionate hatred of Russia, uh, largely because many of their uh, ancestors were oppressed by the Tsars uh, and uh, later uh, by Stalin. And uh, the United States has decided that it's losing its uh, dominant place in the world. And the head of the army, uh, General Lloyd, has, uh, has said, uh, "This is we're in a war against Russia. Uh, our real enemy of China. The war in Ukraine is only the first step in what is going to be a 20-year war. Uh, and our, our war is simultaneously against Russia and China on the one hand, and also against our own uh, labor, uh, our own population, our own working class. Uh, this is a war for uh, basically who is going to be able to, to run the world. And uh, the State Department and Biden and uh, especially his foreign exchange, his uh, uh, Secretary of State and his foreign advisors uh, are absolutely uh, committed to uh, dividing the world 
into two uh, halves, uh, into uh, the European, the NATO half uh, of NATO and uh, Europe and America, and uh, the rest of the world: Russia, China, Iran, India, uh, the whole uh, uh, basic of, of Eurasia. And this is going to uh, the sanctions that you just mentioned are going to create a huge uh, in, further increase in oil prices uh, because Russia is the main oil and gas uh, exporter, and also food prices because Russia is the largest uh, food exporter. So this summer, it's expected to uh, put a lot of pressure on uh, South America, Africa, uh, countries that have to import their energy, import their food, and at the same time, the dollar is going way up against the euro and sterling uh, because uh, the, uh, the United States is the great beneficiary of these sanctions against Europe uh, and against uh, uh, global South countries. So uh, you're, you're going to have uh, the inability of many countries to pay their foreign debts, and that's going to be a break in the chain of payment, and uh, they're, they're going to be supply uh, breakages here. So without supply chains, you have uh, automobiles not being able to be produced because they don't have the computer chips uh, to run the computerized uh, 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 autos. Uh, they can't make uh, dishwashers because the dishwashers don't have uh, the computer uh, system. So you're having uh, all sorts of local crises here, and uh, this seems to be uh, worth the price to the uh, essentially to the State Department and CIA and military uh, who are uh, seeing that uh, the uh, the only solution to uh, economic rivalry between the United States and other countries can be military in character. Now, Professor, you brought up the global south, and I think that's a very important place to put our eyes going forward in the 21st century, because as we know, China's economy is has boomed over the past 40 years. There's no denying that. They are a member of BRICS. They are the C in the BRICS. And they have really expanded their influence in South America. Uh, South America is refusing the whole of South America, including Brazil, who, you know, is led by uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who's, you know, they call it the Trump of the tropics. They are... They are refusing to play ball with the U.S. with the sanctions against Russia. In fact, um, they are still working on imports and exports with one another. They are deepening their ties with China through the BRICS program. They're trying to add Argentina to this uh, burgeoning uh, economic block. Going forward in the future, how do you see BRICS comparing to, oh, I don't know, and, and you name any economic block, name perhaps maybe the EU. How do you compare in the 21st century what BRICS will look like versus what the EU will look like? Who will be in better shape? I think the BRICS will be in better shape for the following reason. Uh, ever since World War II, uh, the BRICS have primarily uh, relied on trading with the United States to uh, I increase their own uh, uh, investment and their own employment. Uh, but now that's all over. That's ended. Well, uh, without uh, being able to uh, import uh, from the BRICS by the United States, all of a sudden uh, this is going to end America's ability to uh, have low-priced uh, production abroad. Uh, for the last 20 years, America has moved its uh, industrial manufacturing out of the country uh, into uh, 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 the BRICS uh, and uh, Asian countries. And all of a sudden, now that it's... Uh, 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 these countries are being hit by sanctions and are being forced to choose. Either you go with the United States 
or you go with Russia, China, and uh, each other, uh, they're going with each other. And uh, this is going to leave the United States without uh, low low-priced imports, uh, that will certainly increase uh, the cost of living. Uh, it will mean a, a, a breakdown of uh, not only individual families, but entire corporations that can't pay their debts. You're already seeing in Germany, uh, many companies are closing down in the last month because they cannot get uh, Russian gas. Uh, if you want to see the future of the United States in a depression, look at what's happening in Germany right now as a scale model. Uh, it's uh, uh, very serious. Uh, the BRICS are go uh, have the ability among themselves that they never had before. They can be completely self-sufficient. Uh, way back in the 1970s, there was a conference of non-aligned nations uh, led by Sukarno that tried to uh, be independent of the United States uh, uh, philosophy of growth, but they, they didn't have enough uh, critical mass uh, to be able to be independent. But now Russia and China, uh, along with their uh, neighbors, have a critical mass, and they don't need the United States anymore. And all of a sudden, this leaves the United States and Europe without means of production uh, abroad. Uh, they, they've lost their manufacturing. They don't, they've, uh, don't have the infrastructure for manufacturing anymore. And all of a sudden, they're uh, facing a very serious collapse from within. Yeah, I view this as almost an interregnum. I mean, on an economic scale and maybe even on a military scale, where the West tried to flex strength that he just no longer had his disposal, in which case um, are running, taking a hit for it. You know, they're trying to basically exert something that they don't necessarily have and taking a hit um, in the process of doing it. Um, what does this mean, though, for something like the dollar? Like, as I look at the rest of the world, it seems that the West has basically decided to discredit itself on the world stage. And regardless of the propaganda that basically comes out, those other countries are seeing this. And I would imagine that considering India, China, the BRIC nations, South America, et cetera, has not gotten on board for this. It's almost as if we're just there watching to see what happens and what is this new world order going to be. And does this new world order also deal with a different currency? Meaning, is the dollar at this point under a certain amount of pressure, whether it's with the failing relationship with Saudi Arabia, whether it's going to be with the hit to manufacturing, let's say with Europe and everything else. But is, are we looking at a situation where the dollar or a basket of currencies ends up placing the dollar? And if so, what does that mean for us here in the United States? Well, uh, certainly a basket of currencies uh, and an alternative to the dollar is going to develop for an obvious reason. Uh, uh, the United States has simply grabbed the foreign reserves, first of uh, uh, Venezuela uh, and now of Russia. No country uh, can afford to keep most of its uh, savings in uh, the United States or Europe because if, they follow, if their countries follow a policy that uh, the United States does not like, in other words, if these countries do not let America, by control of their industry, by, by uh, buying financial control of their uh, major uh, corporations, the United States is going to impose sanctions on them and simply do to them what it did to Russia uh, and Venezuela. So these countries, uh, uh, the United States has actually driven these countries to rely on each other now that they can't rely on the United States. Well, uh, the, the area that's hurt most in all of this is Europe. So the when you ask what is the dollar going to do? The dollar is going uh, way up against uh, the euro and against sterling. Uh, the euro has fallen almost to a dollar, and people expect sterling to go down to a dollar. Wow. 
Sterling. So uh, within the NATO itself, within the West, the United States has uh, solidified control over over Europe. However, vis-a-vis uh, the BRICS and the other countries, uh, the BRICS can uh, have their own currency and trading area. They, they're going to create their own uh, international bank as opposed to the International Monetary Fund. They're going to have their own uh, Belt and Road and uh, local development bank uh, instead of uh, the World Bank that was basically uh, designed to promote U.S. exports and U.S. trade. So for the first time, the BRICS are going to be investing to trade among themselves uh, in a non-exploitative way, uh, manner, uh, in, in a non-military manner, uh, instead of uh, letting the United States uh, investors uh, get most of the uh, benefits from uh, their industrial development. And what does it mean for the dollar or what does it mean for the United States, especially Americans? I mean, we're $30 trillion in debt at this point. Um, and I can't necessarily say we even have anything to show for it. It's not like we have health care, not like college education is paid for, any of that stuff. It's just basically been wars. Um, what happens to that if it unravels? Meaning from the standpoint of the American currency, whether it's the, you know, the, the yuan, um, the petrol yuan, for example, or whether it's the BRIC nations coming out with their own currencies. The reason I'm asking this is because in one of Putin's speeches, he actually made the point about a different currency, that there needs to be something else. The dollar has been used as a weapon against many of these countries of a new change. But if that happens, what happens to us here on the home front? <laughs> Well, ever since uh, the United States went off gold in 1971, foreign countries, didn't, uh, central banks, when they would get a balance of payments uh, inflow, trade surplus countries like Germany and Europe uh, and China and Russia, too, had no alternative uh, to, to invest to keep their savings except by either gold or by U.S. dollars. But now they're not buying U.S. dollars anymore. The, uh, the uh, Cold War against Russia, uh, the new war, has uh, ended the uh, desire of w- world central banks and investors to hold dollars. And most of the support of the dollar has been uh, by financial capital movements, not trade movements, because the dollar is in deficit uh, for trade. So this means that uh, uh, the dollar will probably uh, go down against uh, the BRICS currencies, just as you're seeing the ruble go up. Uh, why is the ruble going up? It's because when America imposed sanctions against Russia uh, uh, and uh, wouldn't uh, uh, export food to Russia, uh, Russia developed its own agriculture. It, it was importing cheese from Lithuania. Now it makes its own cheese. Uh, it was importing uh, various uh, crops. It's now growing them at home. Uh, President Putin has said he's going to focus uh, Russian investment on import displacing investment to produce at home instead of relying on the United States and Europe. And so this means that uh, other countries really will not need the United States or Europe. They will rely on each other in uh, a kind of balanced uh, mutual uh, trade for mutual gain. And uh, that's going to leave the dollar sort of on uh, the the outside uh, of the world. And uh, (coughs) the first effect will be that uh, the, uh, the many of the American corporations and the government itself have no way of repaying the debts they've run up. So there are going to be a lot of bankruptcies here, and uh, the bankruptcies are going to just sort of be spreading, and it's, uh, it's going to be much worse than a recession. It's going to be a very serious depression. That's what uh, the Cold War and uh, the Biden's uh, military uh, war has uh, uh, let, let the United States in for. Yeah, professor, has would you say that our the latter half 
of our 20th century foreign policy, especially in the way of, you know, instead of diplomacy, we've used used sanctions in lieu of diplomacy, that at this point, with the the overt growth of the BRICS economies, has America basically put herself in kind of functional obsolescence for the 21st century? That That's a good term, functional obsolescence. <laughs> Nobody needs it anymore. Uh, the idea in America was if you put sanctions on Russia, if you attack the Russian speakers in Ukraine, and you just say, uh, we're going to not uh, uh, sell Coca-Cola to you anymore and uh, uh, nice clothing and other things. And McDonald's. Would be so upset they'd overthrow the government. And that, that was a crazy thought. Uh, Americans think all we have to do to make countries do what we want is hurt them. Well, uh, that's an awful foreign policy to say, we will bomb you, we will hurt your, uh, your economy, we will uh, uh, interrupt your uh, uh, consumer uh, spending uh, unless you uh, agree to follow our, uh, whatever we tell you to do. Well, instead of making other people surrender, saying, okay, we don't want to be bombed, we'll surrender, they're saying, well, we're going our own way. We're going to uh, get as far away from you as possible. And that's exactly what's happening. Michael, you've made this um, rentier interest. I want to get into that for a moment. And I'll just quote it. It says, quote, the decline of the West is not necessarily or historically inevitable as a result of choosing policies dictated by rentier interests. The threat posed to society by rentier interests is a great challenge of every nation today, whether it's the government can restrict the dynamics of finance capitalism and prevent an oligarchy from dominating the state and enriching itself by imposing austerity on labor and industry. So far, the West has not risen to this challenge. Now, explain why that's so disastrous from the standpoint of a country like that. Because, you know, manufacturing, I think I mentioned earlier, we are less into manufacturing. We basically moved into this notion of financialization of the economy itself. Why is that a problem going forward? Well, in in uh, in the past, uh, the tech, uh, economic textbooks uh, make it appear as if if you're an industrial corporation and you're making a profit, uh, you're supposed to reinvest your profits in expanding, um, building more factories, expanding your production, hiring more labor. But more than ninety percent of uh, corporate earnings for the largest American corporations have uh, not been spent on new investment. Ninety percent have been spent on buying their own stock or paying dividends just to increase stock prices. Uh, the uh, wealthiest Americans who uh, own, uh, one, 10% of the Americans own about uh, 70% of the stocks. And they make money not by making profits, but by increasing uh, their stock prices. Uh, they've made money financially uh, by financial engineering, not by industrial engineering. And uh, ultimately, uh, you have to have some kind of uh, production underlying your prosperity. Otherwise, uh, you can make uh, uh, you can uh, manipulate uh, stock prices and bond prices, and you can have banks uh, lend and in inflate real estate prices. But if there's no production of goods and services and cars and uh, what people, uh, clothing and what pe- people need, uh, then all of a sudden, all of this financial superstructure is going to, to crash. And that's happened again and again in history. And uh, America is uh, repeating uh, the same kind of crash that occurred uh, in the 19th century crises and in uh, in the Great Depression of the 19 uh, after uh, the 1920s and 30s, we're in that kind of a situation. What what does a 21st century Great Depression look like, Professor? 
it'll be highly localized. Uh, it's not going to be in the BRICS. It's not going to be in Russia and China because uh, their economy has been based on manufacturing and hiring labor to produce uh, goods and services that the population uh, use. But in the United States, uh, if they don't even make screws in the United States. They, uh, so you, you can't put together uh, cars uh, if you don't have bolts and screws and, and uh, fasteners. Uh, so literally, uh, the economy is, is like a car without bolts. It's, it's uh, falling apart. There, uh, there, you, you need a whole range of uh, imports uh, in order to uh, to uh, continue production, but uh, you don't have any money to pay for the imports because you're not able to export anything. The United States uh, hopes to make a huge killing in exporting weapons to Europe. Uh, Europe has essentially dum uh, dumped all of its uh, military, uh, 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 obsolete military tanks and arms uh, in Ukraine, and now the United States is hoping on making a killing in producing arms. Uh, but these, this weaponry, like the F, uh, the airplanes and the, uh, the, uh, the guns that America makes don't really work very well in war. They're not, uh, they're not uh, weapons to fight with. They're weapons to employ labor and uh, produce at a big profit in the United States and sell to Europe, but uh, uh, you're not going to have bricks buying American weaponry. Uh, it, it, and uh, America really doesn't have uh, any other basis for uh, earning enough money to buy imports except for uh, oil and uh, uh, agriculture. So uh, you could say that America is like an oil station uh, with atom bombs. Oh, no. <laughs> I love that. Well, are we so, going to be waiting in in bread lines? Are we in oh, soup lines? Man. I mean, is that is that what we're going to be looking at here? I mean, as as Joe Biden gives us this bleak outlook that the war is going to continue indefinitely, that the gas prices, he basically tells the American people to get used to it, folks. In this perpetuity. is this is what it looks like in, per, in perpetuity. I mean, are we are we facing soup and bread lines? Are we is that what this is now? Just everyone's going to be going to a food pantry. Why are you using the future tense? That's already happening. It's already happening in California. It's already happening yes. in New York. There, of course, there, there, there's a continual redistribution of food to people, to the homeless. There's, uh, the homeless population in New York has grown uh, by vast amounts. And uh, now that the uh, freeze on uh, eviction of tenants behind in their rent uh, has expired, uh, there have been tens of thousands of evictions uh, That's right. here in New York. Uh, the streets, the subways are filled with the homeless people trying to to uh, sleep on them at night uh, to get air conditioning. We're already in the, they've already organized bread lines across the country. Yeah, same thing in Virginia, where it's, because even though the block was on, they didn't do anything about the rent. Meaning it's like, so each month it just gets higher and higher and higher. And it's like this person who couldn't pay $1,000 for one month certainly can't pay $10,000 like a year later. I mean, it's insane. What would, if you were, if you had the president's ear, let's say you had the president's ear, let's say Joe Biden was listening. What advice would you give him to try to right the ship? And I know it's going to take Congress and everything else. I guess we're talking about a magical door. But all things been equal, if you had to give any level of advice to try to correct something of this, even if it's correcting the logic itself to allow us to propagate in a better way going forward, what would it be? I think it's too late to do anything. Uh, you, you mentioned Congress, uh, and no matter what the president does, uh, you, Congress is uh, basically uh, representing the campaign backers. Right. 
campaign backers for both parties are Wall Street and the large corporations. And so there's nothing that I could do except uh, 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 to end the control of the large corporations and Wall Street over the political process. Uh, uh, you have the Supreme Court ruling that uh, the government cannot interfere uh, with business in any way. Uh, it, it cannot uh, pass uh, anti-monopoly legislation. Uh, it cannot uh, pass uh, environmental legislation. The, the United States has a dysfunctional constitution that prevents it from solving the problem. All it can do, uh, now that it's not producing wealth at home, all it can do is try to get wealth from foreign countries by exploiting them. And uh, that way is uh, simply going to drive these countries away. Uh, uh, the United States is shooting itself in its own foot. It's uh, ending its own empire by uh, just trying to be to do what uh, the Roman Empire did. Uh, let's just conquer another country and grab uh, uh, grab uh, the booty that we can grab. And uh, since we're not putting it making it at home, uh, we've got to get it from foreign countries. And uh, imperialism doesn't really pay any more than it paid England or paid uh, Spain in the 17th century or uh, paid uh, uh, other imperialist countries. The, the age of imperialism is over. Well, you wrote the book, Super Imperialism, right? If I remember correctly. Um, I used to watch your lectures and everything else. I've always enjoyed you as a speaker. What does that mean? Um, go into that for me, this notion of super imperialism and how, look, it didn't necessarily help these other countries that were basically trying to live off of other countries in that way. And now the U.S. has created this kind of different form uh, where it doesn't look exactly in the way that Britain has done it. It's something new, but it also is not necessarily working to the benefit of the country itself. Explain that to the audience for me. Well, what America benefited was from the dollar, as you pointed out earlier. And imagine if you could go to the grocery store and you could uh, uh, just uh, buy groceries and pay in with IOUs, you know, week after week. And then uh, the uh, finally the store owner would say, look, I can't take any more of your IOUs. You, you don't have a job. You're not producing anything. And uh, you tell the store, well, wait a minute, just use your uh, IOUs to pay the farmers that give you uh, uh, the food uh, to pay the manufacturers view uh, uh, the cereal and things. Just end of, uh, I'm just going to keep writing in my uh, IOUs and you'll use them as money. Well, that's what the United States has done. It just uh, spent IOUs in buying up uh, foreign uh, con uh, countries' industry, foreign stocks and bonds, and most of all in, spending, in military spending abroad. Uh, the Almost the entire U.S. Uh, balance of payments deficit is military, and uh, it, it's been doing. It's got it cost free because it writes IOUs, and nobody could cash in uh, the IOUs for anything. The United States wouldn't let uh, uh, China uh, buy uh, important uh, uh, industries that it wanted to here. It wouldn't let Japan uh, buy anything more than a real estate that it lost money on. And so all of a sudden, these uh, nobody will take your IOUs anymore. The uh, super imperialism gave America a free ride by the fact that it could spend dollars and uh, these ended up in foreign central banks. They couldn't do anything with them. But now they're avoiding dollars. Uh, Russia has uh, reduced its dollar holdings uh, very strongly and China has reduced its dollar holdings. They're building up their gold holdings and they're going to increasingly hold the currencies of each other. They're going to create their own ba uh, BRICS bank that is going to essentially every uh, BRICS member will uh, say can 
contribute a, a, a trillion dollars or a hundred billion of their currency, and uh, this will be uh, used as, uh, to finance their mutual trade, and the, the new BRICS bank can create its own special drawing rights or bank or its, its own uh, electronic currency or paper currency to uh, en- enable uh, uh, trade to uh, exist without the dollar. And if they don't hold the dollar, if they hold uh, each other's currency, then where will uh, nobody will uh, have any reason to accept the IOUs, the dollars that America spends on its uh, 800 military bases across the world, uh, or uh, buying uh, control of foreign industry. The dollar is uh, a currency is something that is uh, nobody wants anymore. That's very interesting. I mean, because you got Leonardo, you just well. I mean, even if are you thinking that basically there's going to be two world orders that the world is going to bifurcate? I think Mark Sloboda called it the Great Uncoupling, where you have this kind of Western areas of the globe, and then you have this kind of um, you can say you can call it the brick areas of the globe, and that businesses are going to be in one or the other, or they would have to find some kind of way, I guess, to marginalize or dance between these two particular world spheres. Is that what you're looking at? Where it's going to be like beta and VHS, and one basically wins over the other, or is it just both systems propagate themselves indefinitely into the future? How are you framing this in your head? Two uh, 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 kinds of economies in the world. One will be the U.S. kind, where you you make money financially, not by industrial investment. Uh, And you have uh, financial corporations, uh, Wall Street becoming the central economic planner. Or you can have uh, the rest of the world, the BRICS will have governments as the main economic uh, planner. The governments, uh, as in China and Russia, can create their own money. They can create their own domestic currency as much as they want to find, uh, but they will not create their domestic currency uh, to uh, finance corporate takeovers or financial engineering or simply to push up uh, housing prices. They'll uh, create their currency to actually invest in new means of production so they won't need the United States and Europe uh, and uh, invest in infrastructure to lower the cost of doing business uh, and to provide uh, basic needs, uh, education, transportation, uh, health care uh, by themselves, and uh, and you'll have uh, government planning basically moving towards a kind of socialism uh, as opposed to America's uh, uh, and Europe's uh, finance capitalism. And basically, uh, the uh, industrial social, industrial policy, you could call it industrial capitalism or socialism, uh, that is going to continue to grow, and uh, financial economies can't grow by themselves. They can only grow parasitically. Uh, and uh, that's uh, where the United States will be left out of the growth because it's just not set up for it. That's not its philosophy. Yeah, I feel like my my big takeaway so far from this conversation with Professor Hudson is is uh, self sufficiency is a, a number one thing that that these growing nations have figured out, mm-hmm. and functional obsolescence is where we're at here in the U.S., which is, I mean, it's it's sad. It's sad when you're, you know, when you're living here in the U.S. and, and things could have been so different oh, yes. when you have politicians, you know, that think they're playing politics. And maybe once upon a time, it existed in a world of just politics. Yeah. But geopolitics now, it, you know, it, it's like a Venn diagram. So much of it has now overlapped into the financial sector of the world where it's unavoidable for the average everyday Joe. And we're paying at the pump. We are paying at the grocery store. 
Babies don't have formula. I mean, now we're literally looking, do we not manufacture our own women's hygiene products? Because those things are now at a shortage. Uh, and and it's just, it, it's scary to hear the perspective from, you know, an expert economist of where we're sitting at. Like you said, the bread lines, the soup lines, that they're already happening. People are you know, have been forced out of their their residences because, you know, this bad, these COVID measures that were taken have now, you know, been pulled out from under them. And, and it's just like one, one thing after the next, Professor. I mean, wh- where do we go from here? You said that, that it's too late. So what now? Uh, well, <laughs> there's very, uh, and if we were another country, uh, uh, if America were in the position, say, of uh, Poland or Ukraine, Americans would emigrate. But Americans uh, aren't able to emigrate. They don't speak foreign languages, and they're not really welcome abroad. So Americans can't go anywhere. Uh, the BRICS countries, I think you're going to have an increasing interaction among them. Uh, the BRICS countries can continue to uh, redesign their economy to pr- uh, to support their own living standards and to actually raise their living standards uh, while living standards go down in the West. It's almost the reverse of what happened after uh, World War II, uh, when everybody wanted to uh, uh, have uh, all of the consumer goods that the United States uh, had. Now uh, the, the consumer goods aren't made in the United States anymore. Uh, and so you're going to have uh, the rest of the world uh, essentially uh, redesigning a mutual trade and investment uh, with each other, uh, going probably happily on their way. And there's very little the United States can do about it, uh, except threaten to bomb uh, people. And uh, it's, uh, as I mentioned, they're, they're not even good at that anymore, as we've seen in Ukraine. I guess this is going to be the last question. Um, well, maybe. I mean, we have another question or we can go to calls. Either one is fine. But from your perspective, this I've heard you give lectures on junk economics. If you had to review, let's say, what Biden has been saying over the last year or so, or even, you know, just over the last, let's say, couple of, well, Biden's only been in office, what, a year and a half, give or take? Wow, it feels so much longer. But what would you, how would you evaluate our current, I guess, system that we're basically running by under the model of junk economics, especially under this notion of inflation and what is driving it, why we're having to deal with it in the way that we're dealing with it? Because inflation was taking place. It's true that the war with Ukraine made it massively worse. But the inflation was kind of coming up even before it got to that point. Was it just the amount of money that the U.S. had spent during COVID? Or was there something else that was basically driving the inflationary pressures that we were dealing with before the Ukrainian war took place? Well, Biden has said, uh, and his foreign secretaries have said, that uh, the uh, the world is dividing between democracy and autocracy. Uh, but uh, by democracy, what he means is an oligarchy. Uh, America is not a, a democracy. It's an oligarchy. Uh, the wealthiest... Uh, 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 con- uh, campaign contributors uh, on Wall Street and monopolies can tr- determine who is are going to be the political candidates uh, that run. Uh, and the most Americans uh, uh, want uh, what they're they're not getting. They want public mil- uh, medical care, free medical care. They don't get it. They want free education and to write down the student loans. They don't get it. So uh, uh, there's no way that uh, the uh, uh, Americans or even the Europeans. Uh, uh, voters uh, have a way of voting democratically. Uh, so uh, certainly uh, you have really oligarchy 
versus the rest of the world. And, and what is an autocracy? By an autocracy, uh, Biden and his advisors mean any country that is strong enough to regulate their industry, to prevent monopolies, to regulate their industry and the public interest, uh, to regulate uh, uh, the environment so that it's not polluted. That's called an autocracy. Uh, it used to be called socialism. Uh, so basically, the choice is between an oligarchy uh, and socialism. Uh, last week, the, the uh, Supreme Court said that the United States has no rights whatsoever to impose environmental standards to stop global warm, warming uh, without a, uh, uh, a Congress uh, passing a law or an amendment for this. And Congress cannot pass any controversial uh, economic act because of the, uh, the two parties. Uh, need, uh, neither party has uh, enough votes for uh, the supermajority that's needed. So America has become sort of a, a failed state, a, uh, uh, an, uh, an oligarchy that is falling very much in the way that Rome fell. Uh, the oligarchy was so greedy that it impoverished the rest of the population and drove it into debt bondage. Well, America's being driven into debt peonage. Uh, all the money that uh, uh, people can make at their jobs go to pay their foreign debts these days. Uh, their their uh, mortgage debt, their student loan debt, their credit card debt, their automobile debt. Uh, not, uh, there's no money left to buy goods and services. The rest of the world uh, is not debt-ridden. Uh, Russia's uh, uh, public debt is only about 15% of its uh, GDP. Russia can afford uh, uh, to use uh, credit financing to increase uh, its uh, consumer spending, its, uh, its domestic market, its uh, capital investment in, factory, in new factories, and it can now begin to produce all the things that uh, the uh, United States hoped to prevent it from, uh, uh, from doing uh, back in the 1990s. Michael, phenomenal. Um, visit. Thank you, man. I really appreciate this. Like I said, I've watched you for years and I have been, I was um, extremely enamored when um, I heard that uh, our producer was able to get you. So absolutely thank you for yeah, joining us. And definitely the the rumble room went wild because they've been asking for Professor Hudson for yeah. a long time. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Michael Hudson. Oh, he's oh. saying so. one more oh, thing. Oh, I'm Go sorry. Ahead. Please, Professor. Just, I, I appreciate that. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I think uh, Russia is going to, and China are going, and the BRICS are going to be the most uh, exciting place uh, to be for the next uh, few decades. I can't wow. say I disagree with you. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say I disagree with you. They're up and coming. They're gathering strength while the West is losing it. I mean, we're, they're killing themselves, basically. I mean, the West. Um, but Michael Hudson, Professor Michael Hudson, is president of the Institute for Study of Long-Term Economic Trends, a Wall Street financial analyst, distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri. Missouri, and author of the book's Destiny, well, well, the first one, and Forgive Them of Their Debts, Lending Foreclose and Redemption from Bronze Age Finance to Jubilee Year, Super Imperialism, um, I, or J, is for Junk Economics, and Destiny of Civilizations. Um, Professor Michael Hudson, thank you one more time. All right, we have about two minutes. Really good show. Oh, one minute. one minute. I'm sorry. I'm corrected. I've been corrected. About one minute. So I want to thank all of you guys for joining us today. We had a huge, really good crowd today. I was looking at the thing and I was talking to some of the people. I want to thank our producer. I want to thank our engineer. Doing our a fill, great job. Our fill-in engineer. fill-in engineer, but still engineer nonetheless. Bear with us, folks. People noticing that the music's a little funky today. He'll be he'll be perfect tomorrow. I promise he'll, you. He'll get it figured out. He's yeah. a pro. Yeah. And I want to thank my co-host, Manila. Thank you, Jamaro. All our radio people and you, all Rumblers. our rumblers. You guys have a phenomenally awesome day. We'll see you bright and early in the morning. Hasta mañana.